it's time to sit back and relax with your favorite drink and listen. The Witch, the Vampire Hunter, and the Lunatic. In the nights of old, long forgotten, when man was younger still and had yet to forsake his fear of the dark, a great beast roamed the land. A beast without conscience or fear, whose love of wanton cruelty was matched only by his insatiable thirst for the freshly spilled blood of humankind, whom he both loved and hated in equal measure, not unlike a lover scorned by the object of his affection. Though it would come to pass that a later generation of man would come to give him countless names and titles such as the Dark One, the Night Father, the Prince of Hunger, the Son of the Serpent, and perhaps the simplest and most widely recognized by humankind, the Vampire. Those brave men and women who gazed at him across the battlefield called him by his name, Torak Morn, a name of the old tongue which meant Forsaken Son. Man was mighty in those days, but had yet to build his tall cities or perfect his engines of war, and thusly found himself constantly pushed to the edge of the abyss by his most hated enemy, whose terrible malice seemed to only be thwarted by the light of dawn. Many sought to destroy Torak Morn, but there were others among man who lusted after his power. Who among us can truly stand against the serpent? They asked as they threw themselves at his feet in worship. More often than not, the vampire simply slew these men in disgust, for his once human heart still burned with hatred for those who would commit treachery against their own. As time passed, however, Torak Morn's heart grew heavy with the weight of being both the first and last of his kind, and he began to allow those he deemed worthy to drink of his blood and thusly be remade in his image. These were the Night King, the first lords of Shadow. With them by his side, Torak Morn united the scattered tribes of man and established a nation of the night, which he called Nelgoth, another name of the old tongue meaning Our Land. With the intention of ruling over both his kindred and his hated enemies, the humans, for all time. But the vampire, like the humans he so despised, was a creature of hunger and ambition. It was not in his nature to ever be truly satisfied, and therefore, once he conquered all that lay before him, he sought through the blackest sorcery to trap the old gods of death and life into mortal form, so he might taste of their blood and absorb their divine power for his own. However, the old gods were more clever than the vampire, and on the eve of his dark ritual, the god of death whispered promises of power everlasting to the Nightkin, if they would but end their father's madness, while the god of life appeared before the warrior king of mankind, called Garrick the Lion, and gave unto him a spear crafted from the wood of the Tree of Life, a weapon that could deprive the vampire of his unholy magic, if it but pierced his heart. With spear in hand and the god of blessing, Garrick took an army and stormed Torak Morn's keep that had been left undefended by all but the loyalist of the Night King, and a battle that shook the earth itself in shoot. Weakened and distracted by his ritual, but far from defenseless, Torak Morn unleashed his fury upon his enemies, killing scores of them and even beheading Garrick the Lion himself. The vampire's victory over both mankind and the gods seemed imminent, until his own daughter, Helena, for reasons that only she will ever know, took the spear from the warrior king's corpse and drove it into her father's heart, vanquishing him. It was on that night, and 
all the nights that followed that Helena the Redeemer made a pact of peace with humankind and erected a grand tomb around her father's keep so that no one, whether they be a child of man or a child of night, could disturb it. Many ages have passed since that time. A man has grown confident and complacent behind his high-walled cities. He has forgotten the deeds of Helena the Redeemer and no longer fears the dark places of the world. He has declared war on the children of the knights, and sworn to drive them to extinction in the name of his new god, while the children of the knights stand divided and bickering among themselves, calling for peace, others for war. In these nights of confusion, of ill omens, dark whispers, and fast approaching war, the tale of the witch, the vampire hunter, and the lunatic will begin amidst a grand celebration of the rich and powerful. The ballroom was alight with the flickering flames of thousands of candles and was clearly visible even far off in the dark and the haunting sounds of the violinist's song echoed throughout the obscenely luxurious villa so that not even the drunken laughter of its many guests could drown it out. They come by the thousands tonight, mostly by carriage, some by boat, while others who had not the good fortune to be born into affluence came on foot, braving the perilous trek through the forest from the nearest villages miles away, despite the wolves, bandits, and far darker things that prowled the woods after sundown. For the poor folk of Nelgoth, it was all worth it for a chance to enjoy a night of hospitality in the home of Lord Feodor Thrain, a merchant whose vast wealth, polished oratory skills, and generous disposition had earned him the title of Prince among the common people. He was an aristocrat of the eccentric sort, in the sense that unlike virtually every other one of his countrymen that was his equal in wealth and influence, he offered his hospitality freely so that anyone, be they regal-born noble or beggar off the streets, was welcome at his extravagant celebrations, where they could feel free to partake of expensive wines, finely cooked meats, and of course the pleasurable company of his many servant girls. Prince Thrain always aimed to please his guests, and spared no expense to that end and if his guests should find themselves too tired or too drunk to return home by daybreak, they could of course recover their strength in one of the hundreds of furnished bedchambers that filled the villa. Whenever he was questioned by his fellow nobles about his outrageous policy, Prince Thrain would just flash his signature smile and say, He who is closest to the poor is closest to the gods. Needless to say, he was one of the most popular men in the region, if not the whole country, and to Thomas Lachance, it was painfully obvious that he was a vampire. Now, Tommy had seen the light before. Most of the people of Nelgoth thought of vampires as savage undead predators that kept to the wilds and hunted in packs, killing whatever unfortunate soul was unwise enough to wander into the forests alone after dark, for fear of wandering too far into civilized lands. Which wasn't untrue. Many of them did behave like that. But the larger truth that people either didn't realize or chose to deny, was that the smarter and more cunning of the vampires had long ago learned to blend into human society, living among their food source as true wolves in sheep's clothing, or, in Thrain's case, a wolf in shepherd's clothing. It made Tommy's job as a hunter of their kind all the more difficult. Fucking sneaky leeches, he thought to himself, as he ascended the marble steps that led to the villa entrance. He was taking a lot of risks tonight, big ones. He had to stay focused because in the business of hunting the hunters, a distracted man is a dead one. 
the ornate archway that was the villa entrance seemed unguarded save a modestly armoured doorman with a thick grey beard and a sleepy look painted across his face. A less experienced or novice hunter would have taken such laughable security as carelessness on the part of his targets, but Tommy was not a novice. He knew his intended target well enough to know that it wasn't carelessness, but rather arrogance that lay behind Thrain's lack of security. It was his style to taunt would-be pursuers in that way, as if to say, Go on, come into my home. It won't make any difference. Tommy straightened out his black overcoat as he approached, making sure to keep the various silver blades and spring-loaded firing mechanisms hidden beneath it, ready to draw for what he felt was the inevitable confrontation that lay ahead of him tonight. As he cleared the final step towards the entrance, he tipped his hat to the guard and greeted him cordially. Evening. The old guard replied with a nod and returned to his dazed half-sleep as Tommy entered the villa. Poor bastard probably breaks his back for shit pay from a monster. Tommy couldn't help but think to himself as he passed the old man and pressed onward into the villa. The marble walkway gave way to an extravagant courtyard lined with lanterns and statues, some of which were of animals like lions, wolves and bears while others were stone depictions of famous warriors from Nelgoth's history, such as Nestor the Black, with his imposing warhammer and cold eyes, Martin the Selfless, his passionate fury against the injustices of his time captured admirably in stone, and even Garrick the Lion, his stern and uncompromising gaze near lifelike. In the gardens that surrounded these statues, seemingly on all sides were dozens of drunks from all walks of life, Young noblemen drank and mingled with beggars, farmers, craftsmen, bakers, stonemasons, architects, soldiers, labourers, and old street halls, while the younger and fairer serving girls at the villa made their rounds with silver trays of wine. Though, to be fair, mingled was probably an understatement. The courtyard was in a state of complete pandemonium. Every way Tommy looked... People were laughing, dancing, brawling, puking, and fucking the night away. He hadn't even made it to the building itself yet. Chaos made Tommy uneasy, because he knew that vampires lived for chaotic situations such as this, when the prey was divided, distracted, and unaware. The ballroom seemed to be on the villa's uppermost terrace, about three floors up as far as Tommy could tell, and since he was certain that Thrain would be entertaining his guests in the ballroom, that meant there were at least three floors of witnesses, guards, and God knows what else between him and the leech he was there to gut. A weary look painted his already rough features as he weighed his options on how to proceed. An outright assault is out of the question, he concluded in short order. He also doubted he could take Thrain by surprise, since he'd already buried a string of colleagues who had attempted as much, and there hadn't been much of them left to bury. He also considered the very real possibility that the entire villa could be crawling with vampires, not just Thrain. He found himself wishing he'd been a bit more sober when that slippery old bastard Isaac jokingly asked him if he thought he could handle a suicide mission. He could just picture the old man right now rocking back and forth in that rickety old chair he loved so much back at Fort Vigilance, with a glint in his cloudy grey eyes as he drank himself stupid and took bets on how much of Tommy would be left when the bloodsuckers were done with him. The thought made Tommy promise to himself that, once he made it back to Fort Vigilance, 
he was going to slug the decrepit old bastard right in that smug little grin of his. The music from within the villa shifted from a joyful drinking tune to something more solemn and ominous as Tommy weighed his way inside, almost as if to warn him that he was now in the lion's den. The building's interior was no less extravagant than the courtyard. A fine red carpet stretched from the doorway into the spacious parlour that was lined on either side with long tables packed with food. Various portraits and scenic paintings covered the walls, and the centre of the room was filled with people laying on expensive furniture, raising odd-looking pipes to their mouths and blowing out white smoke that gave off a distinctly sickly sweet odour that Tommy couldn't quite place. In contrast to the courtyard, the parlour was much less chaotic. In fact, the only people who seemed to be on their feet at all were the servants who paced back and forth with their wine trays. One of them, a pretty-looking dark-haired girl that looked to be in her early twenties, approached him with a smile as she walked by. "'Wine, my lord,' she offered. "'No thanks,' he replied bluntly. She looked a bit crestfallen at that, but attempted to make conversation regardless. "'I've not seen you here before. Is this your first celebration?' You, um, could say that. Did you travel far? Far enough. Are you tired? Do you need someone to help you forget your long journey? She asked him in an overtly provocative and flirtatious manner as she suddenly leaned in close to him, pressing her breasts against his shoulder. That made Tommy chuckle. Sorry, love, you're not my sort. Which was true enough. It was just simpler for him to say that than it was to explain to her that he preferred the company of men to that of women, a concept which seemed to be utterly baffling and offensive to most people for some reason. The girl, who clearly had very little experience with rejection, pursed her lips into a pronounced pout. Fine, you probably couldn't handle me anyway, she huffed as Tommy walked away without another word. With that distraction out of the way, Tommy was looking for a way upward. A staircase, a low-hanging balcony, something. But luck seemed to be totally against him tonight, because everywhere he looked, he only saw more winding hallways lined with countless portraits, and each time he passed through a door, there was only another hallway which shouldn't have been possible in this relatively small building. In Tommy's mind, this could have meant a few different things. Either he was a very poor judge of the villa's layout, or there was a sorcerer at work nearby, and he sincerely hoped that the former was the case. At first, there were party-goers at every corner, stumbling around, rutting in the bedrooms, or simply passed out on the floor. The more he explored, however, the less and less people he saw, until he was pacing through the wide corridors alone. That was when the whispers started, low and quiet at first, but they gradually began to grow in volume and pitch, and seemed to come from all directions. Thomas, Thomas, come dance with us, Thomas. The master is waiting, they cooed. Oh, fuck, thought Tommy as he went for a blade, fully expecting to be pounced on at any moment. Though he would never admit it to anyone, he was afraid. Even the greenest hunter knew that you had to get the drop on the leeches first if you wanted the hunt to go well, and that if they got the drop on you... You were as good as dead. A cold chill pressed up his spine as he pushed forward, drawing a long dagger from his sleeve while the whispers started to taunt him. We can smell your terror, human. It's sweet like the red mead in your veins. 
Won't you let us taste it? They mocked. The long corridor seemed to stretch on forever, and the legion of painted faces on the walls seemed to look down on Tommy with amused contempt as he made his way toward the end of the corridor. When you are one of us, you will know true joy, Thomas. The night is boundless and beautiful, and it will consume all. The whispers promised, as Tommy did his best to ignore them and stay alert, since he knew that this was how the vampire hunted its prey, by wearing them down from a distance before moving in for the kill when they were tired and terrified. Tommy was neither, and he swore to himself that if he was going to die this night, he was going to cut open a few of the pale fuckers first. Somewhere ahead of him, candlelights flickered and danced to the same ominous violin tune he'd heard in the parlour, and he could make out the faint silhouettes of figures dancing in the shadows. Oh, time to do or die, he thought grimly. The whispers were frantic at this point, no longer speaking to Tommy himself, but rather to each other in some language he could not recognize. They seemed to go completely quiet once Tommy took his first step into the lavish ballroom. On either side of him, men in finely tailored suits donned painted wolf masks and danced with ladies in exquisite silk dresses who themselves wore similar masks depicting deer, rabbits, foxes and various other woodland creatures. The polished obsidian floor radiated with an unnatural warmth, as if by magic, and the high ceiling was covered in paintings of angels with solemn, pitying expressions drawn on their faces. In the ballroom centre stood a figure in a golden robe and an ornate mask of a lion that obscured nearly all of his features, with the exception of his fiery red hair. Welcome, Mr. Lachance, to my summer celebration, he bellowed as Tommy approached. I hope the road treated you well. Tommy strode forward with purpose in his step and blades in his hands. Why don't we cut this bullshit and get to the part where I cut you open, he said with exasperation. Laughter filled the ballroom. I like to take my time, Mr. Lachance. It's not often that I get to enjoy the company of a fellow hunter, for we are both hunters of a sort, are we not? Consider it a courtesy, replied Thrain jovially. Oh, is this the part where you launch into a long monologue about how we're not so different and that good and evil are just points of view, and that my narrow view of morality keeps me from seeing the obvious superiority of the vampire race? Oh, and that if I would just throw down my weapons and join you, I could have power beyond my wildest dreams and the rest of eternity will be filled with world peace, rainbows and gumdrops? Uh, actually, I was going to ask if the wine was any good. I can't taste it myself because of my condition, but I pay good money for it. It would be nice to know if I'm getting my money's worth, replied Thrain in a cynical tone. Pfft, it's overpriced shit, just like everything else here, said Tommy bluntly. Thrain burst out laughing. <laughs> you know, I wish I could get that kind of honesty out of my servants. Oh, you are a treat, Mr. Lachance. Tommy responded by throwing his dagger across the room directly into Thrain's chest. A collective gasp filled the room as all the masked guests stopped dead in their tracks and began to hiss. Thrain looked down at the blade sticking out from his chest, as if it didn't faze him at all. He held up his hand and all the hissing ceased. Calm down, everyone. No need to get excited, he said as he reached down and pulled the blade out from his abdomen and let it drop to the floor.
Tommy had heard stories of vampires powerful enough to survive a blow to the heart, but to see it firsthand was frightening. Oh, fuck, he thought to himself. I can see we've both been through this enough times to be bored with it, Mr. Lachance, so why don't we just uh, skip the bullshit, as you put it, and get to the business at hand? You and your merry band of murderers at Fort Vigilance would like to see me dead because you believe me to be one of humanity's greatest enemies, no? That if you destroy me, you cut off the head of the vampire nation. Am I close? he asked. Close enough, said Tommy, drawing another blade. Then, what if I were to tell you that even if you succeeded, your victory would be for naught? But a darkness far worse than I draws closer and closer every moment. A darkness that is as much an enemy to me as it is to you. That you cannot hope to destroy it without my aid. Well, I'd say that sounds like bullshit, scoffed Tommy. Thrain paid no mind to Tommy's reply and continued. You will believe in time. For now I will present you with three gifts. The first is your life. Cherish it while you can, for it is short and too often wasted. The second is a name, Selene Cairn. Find her in the marshes to the south. She is closer to the coming darkness than anyone, and will be a necessity in the battles to come. The third is the key to salvation itself. With a clap of his hands, Thrain ushered one of his masked servants forward carrying a stone case. She walked directly up to Tommy and presented the case to him with a curtsy. My lord, she said with a giggle. Tommy recognized the voice of the servant girl from the parlor. Oh, I knew it. He took the case from her and opened it. Within the case was what looked to be an old tree branch sharpened to a point on one end. What's this? Keep it safe, Mr. Lachance. That stick of wood is more valuable than you said Thrain, matter-of-factly. Time is of the essence, and I trust you know the way out. Good evening, Mr. Lachance. There may not be many of them left. With a wave of his hand, the ballroom began to shimmer and glow, until it became like vapour and drifted off into the night, taking the entire villa with it, guests and all, leaving Tommy alone on an otherwise barren hillside. In all his life, Tommy had never felt so relieved. He dropped to his knees and vomited all over the ground. He'd been so sure he was going to die in there, and now the damp night air had never tasted sweeter. He took a moment to gather himself, and he scooped up the box that had been left with him and took off running back to the horse he'd left tied to a tree in the valley below. Fort Vigilance was a two-day ride to the west from where he was, but he intended to get there by sunrise. Part 2 The first time Selene had the dream, it had taken her by surprise. She was dazed and confused and unable to focus her will the way she usually could when the visions came, and that unsettled her deeply. Such omens never came without meaning. The dream was always different, and yet always the same. Tonight it had begun under a tree surrounded by still waters as a red moon hung in a starless sky, washing everything in a dim crimson light. Selene could feel a cool breeze against the back of her neck, and could hear the slow, laboured breathing of the old man who sat beneath the tree covering his face in a funeral shroud. 
He sounded like he was sleeping, but Selene knew he was awake. He was always awake. He leaned up ever so slightly as she approached, and Selene stopped in her tracks. That was as close as she would get to him. She had no desire to get any closer. Kneeling down so she was eye-level with him, she made herself comfortable and said nothing until the old man spoke first. What is this place, daughter of mine? He asked her. His voice was low, almost a whisper, but every word echoed in her skull. I know not, she said in reply. Am I dreaming? Am I cursed? He wondered aloud, voice heavy with something that sounded like grief. She chose her response carefully. You are in a space between spaces, she offered, hoping to placate him. Did you come before me to speak in riddles, child? He asked, unamused. Slan took a deep breath before she elaborated. This place is a limbo, a space that is out of the world, and at the same time beyond it. A twilight world without time, as mortals understand it, she said without doubt. Where's the way out? He asked in a hollow, defeated tone. Selene did not know how to answer that question without enraging him, so she bowed her head in reverence before she quietly said, I know not. For several moments, the only sounds that broke the tense silence between them was the ocean breeze and the steady rattle of the old man's breathing, until he spoke again. What has become of your brethren, daughter of mine? Where have they gone? Why do they no longer attend me? The words came out hoarse and choked, almost as if the old man would soon burst into tears of despair and longing. Selene wanted to give the old man the answers he sought, if only to give him some small measure of peace, but found that she could not. She didn't know who he was, much less where her supposed brethren were, but something in her soul warned her against provoking this pathetic-looking creature's anger, so she answered somewhat evasively. They cannot reach you in this place. It is meant as a prison for you and you alone, she said quietly. The answer seemed to make sense to him, and he leaned back against his tree in his exasperation. Oh, of course. The gods are as cruel as they are clever, after all. Why shouldn't they separate a father from his children? He lamented. Again, silence prevailed over the two of them for several moments before the old man bolted upright and stood towering over Selene. One final question for you, daughter of mine. Speak the truth to me, for I will hear your deceptions before they pass your lips, he said in a voice that trembled with rage. Even beneath the funeral shroud, Slan could see his pitch-black eyes swimming with a wounded and enraged expression that could almost provoke genuine sympathy in Slan. Almost. Why, Helena? Why? he asked her, his voice beginning to break. You were so close. I would have given you all the stars in the night sky, just like I promised, he whimpered. Selene was at a complete loss for words, and for one of the few times in her long existence, she was truly afraid. The still placid water surrounding the two of them had begun to churn and twist violently, and the cool ocean breeze had become a howling whirlwind. Peace, grandfather, she managed to choke out addressing him in the way that tradition dictated a night child should address an elder. Forgive my ignorance. I know not how I have offended you, she offered meekly. The old man's response was to wrap his clawed fingers around her throat. You know not. 
You come before me a traitor and a kinslayer, a destroyer of all that our family has built. You think to feign ignorance? You think ignorance will save you? Perhaps when I flay the skin from your bones and crush your skull against the stones, you'll remember who I am, he hissed. Then came the pain, like always, twisting in her gut like a dagger. It was so awful that for a few short moments, Selene was sure that she was truly dying, not just experiencing one of her visions, and she pleaded for mercy from all the gods. Old Anne knew not to spare her life, for she knew she did not deserve such kindness, but rather that the pain would end. And then, just like that, it did. Her eyes shot open, and she found herself looking out the stained glass window of her meditation chambers, both intensely relieved and deeply terrified. The experience had shaken her, that she could not deny as she doubled over and puked on the floor. She sat on the cold stone in silence for several moments before slowly finding her way back to her feet. In the old nights, a servant might have been waiting outside the door and would have rushed inside to tend to her health when he heard signs of distress, but the nights when servants attended the halls of Castle Cairn were long over. Now only Selene remained in the crumbling ruins of the keep that was once the trading hub of the south. But that was all right. Solitude suited her. It allowed her to center her gifts and expand her knowledge away from prying eyes in a way that she never could have accomplished within civilized society. Moreover, she was never truly alone. Her companions were the beasts of the wild, and her guests were the spirits of Nelgoth. And when the spirits came, they brought knowledge with them. Well, it wasn't always useful knowledge, and the way it was conveyed differed from spirit to spirit. Some of it was whispered, some of it was shouted. Other times, like tonight, it grabbed her by the throat. Selene was powerful in her own right, and wiser than most would assume of a woman of her seemingly few years. She was also very proud and valued self-reliance above most else. But she knew in her heart that she could not properly interpret this omen without guidance. She knew she needed to leave the castle immediately, and made the long trek through the marshes to seek the aid of the one person she hoped would die before she had to see again. Mother. Just whispering the word to herself left a bad taste in her mouth. With reluctance, she left her meditation chamber and descended the long, winding staircase that led to the foyer, a task that tonight seemed more daunting to her than it ever had before. Her mind kept returning to the dream. The spirit she'd encountered, if it could rightly be called a spirit, must have been powerful beyond reason because it was no small feat to pierce the veil that separated the living and the ephemeral to summon her attentions as often and as forcefully as it did. Such things had almost no precedent as far as she knew. The foyer of Castle Cairn had definitely seen better days. Its tiled floor was cracked and in disrepair. The furniture that lined its walls was torn and broken from decades of use only by animals, and the fireplace that stood facing the entry hall was barren and cold, while the faded, crinkling portrait of the late Lord Cairn that hung above it seemed to gaze out at the ruins of the foyer with sad green eyes. Selim paused to look at the portrait, as she made her way down the stairs. Am I making the right choice, father? She wondered to herself. It had been many years since the old man's passing, yet she still felt his absence acutely. He would have known the best way to move forward. He always did. The portrait stared back at her in silence, 
forcing Selene's thoughts back into the present. Reaching out with her thoughts, she called out to Alistor, the spirit that was her familiar and in many ways her oldest friend. At first he didn't respond, which was normal for him. He was as lazy as the cats whose form he loved to take. Selene was persistent though, and soon enough his voice filled her mind. Coming, mistress, he said as he yawned with tired reluctance. A moment or so later, a portly black cat with a single white spot across his forehead came lumbering down the hatrail of the staircase, his ageless eyes displaying the annoyance of someone rudely awoken from a deep sleep. What troubles you at this early hour? Dark and terrible visions, old friend, for which I must have answers, she replied with a newfound certainty creeping into her voice. Shall I read your dreams and give you my thoughts? He offered obligingly. I fear I will need more than your help alone to understand the meaning of these dreams, said Selene gravely. Alistor's yellow eyes went wide with recognition, and his voice betrayed his lack of confidence in what she was planning. Arabelle does nothing out of kindness, mistress. She will exact a steep price for such a service. Selene knew all too well that he was right, and she said as much. I know and you must also know that it is extremely unwise. Read my dreams then if you must, if only to assure yourself that we are out of options. Your will is my own, Selene, and I trust your judgment. But I would be no true servant if I did not counsel you of the dangers your judgments bring. We left Arabelle for a reason. He lectured as he followed her into the foyer proper, where Selene came to an abrupt halt. The mystical runes of protection she had etched into the walls and floor of the foyer were active, their magic shining brightly, which could only have meant one thing. We are invaded, Elistor. Defend yourself, she managed to say, just as a long serrated blade sailed past her left cheek. Out of the shadows at the far end of the foyer, two figures in pitch black cloaks emerged with weapons drawn. The one on the right held a pair of serrated long daggers, while the other carried a large two-handed axe. Time seemed to move in slow motion as Selene reached forward with her right hand, while hot flames burst forth from her fingertips toward her attacker. The hooded figure leapt forward higher and faster than what should have been humanly possible, flipping over the flames like a cloud of smoke and landing artfully on his feet about ten paces away from Selene. Alistor now fully aware of the threat to his mistress, began to growl menacingly. His body began to grow and expand at a rate that would have made those unfamiliar with the world of magic faint outright. His small teeth grew into polished fangs, and his claws grew out to match them until he stood before the intruders not in the form of a house cat, but instead as a predator of the jungle. The hooded figure closest to Selene had no time to react before Alistair leapt on him, they both tumbled to the floor, where the second figure charged forward towards Selene with his axe raised high for an overhead swing. The air around Selene's palm grew dense and cold as a crystalline blade of pure ice formed in her hand with the swiftness of a lightning strike, and before the axe could reach her head, she cut through the wooden handle of the axe and sent the blade clattering to the floor as she let loose another torrent of flame from her other hand, this time catching her assailant full in the face. A shrill, ear-piecing, inhuman scream spilled forth from the hooded figure, who Selene could now see was the larger of the two, 
and he began to flail around wildly as the flames consumed him, but not before his fist slammed into Selene's right cheek, knocking her off her feet and filling her vision with white spots. The figure's pained howls echoed in her ears for a few moments, until it crumbled to the floor in a smoking heap, only to be replaced by a wounded cry from Alistor that chilled her to the bone. Bouncing back onto her feet, she turned to see that the other assassin had somehow managed to put a blade into Alistair's side and regain his footing. He now faced her with a single bloody dagger in hand and murderous fury in his red eyes that glowed from within his hood. Alistair writhed in pain on the floor behind him and the sight of it broke Selene's heart. She scowled at the hooded assassin with rage as she gathered her power and called out to the spirits of hatred and destruction that dwelled within the ephemeral realms demanding their aid, causing the room to go cold and the torches that lined the walls to go dark. The assassin looked directly into her eyes for a moment, and Selene could see a grim acceptance of what was about to happen to him creep into his murderous stare as he cried out, "'My blood for you, father!' with both the determination of a battle cry and the reverence of a prayer, as he leapt for Selene's throat, dagger in hand. White lightning burst forth from her hands and struck the assassin to the floor as the deafening sound of thunder filled the foyer, ending the battle almost as soon as it had begun. Afterward, an intense wave of nausea hit Selene like a battering ram. She sank to her knees and began vomiting for the second time since she'd awoken from her visions. Such was the price of allowing her body to be used as a conduit for the destructive power of the ephemeral. Pain coursed throughout her body, and it wouldn't subside for weeks. Previous experience had taught her that. Rising to her feet after several moments, she rushed to Alistor's side and listened as his pain cries became shallow gasps. You're getting slow, old friend, she said without humour. It is the price of my own carelessness, mistress. A lesson I will have to take to heart. She took a moment to examine his wounds and found that there was little she could do for him. I won't look forward to making the journey to Mother's without you. I will return as soon as I am able. And you are not so frail that you need the protection of an old house cat, Alistair said as he closed his yellow eyes. Safe travels, Selene. And with that, he said no more. Selene stayed by his side nonetheless, until she felt him cross the veil and watch his vessel dissolve into ashes. It had been nearly a century since Alistair had been last slain in combat, and like all the spirits of the natural and unnatural realms, he couldn't truly die, merely return to the outer realms of his origin, but at the same time there was simply no telling how long it would take him to cross back over into the land of the living. It could be days, months, or centuries, she had no time to spare to wait for him. Leaving the ashes of her familiar behind, she turned to examine the battered and broken forms of her slain attackers, and what she saw brought her more questions than answers. Both of the corpses appeared emaciated and malnourished, as if they'd been dead for many weeks before this encounter, and their skin had a sickly grey colour to it. Selene knew this as the telltale signs of vampires and very young ones at that for only the newly formed undead, who had yet to taste of human blood, still carried the pale visage of the grave. And why a pair of fledgling vampires would seek to murder her in her own home was a mystery to Selene, but she theorized that they had been bred for that specific purpose, 
since upon inspection of their pockets she found a crudely drawn map of the castle and various minor runes meant to guard against witches carved into their skin. It was an amateur work, of course, a kind of shoddy spellcraft peddled by hedge wizards and village crones, all but useless against a true student of the craft. But that, coupled with the deeply suspicious timing of this attack, raised uncomfortable questions and seemed to give the clear implication that some vampire somewhere desired her demise. She needed answers now more than ever, so she wasted no time in filling her travel bag and stepping through the ancient cast-iron gate of her family home and out into the ominous fog of the marshes beyond. She knew that Mother would be expecting her, and that it was unwise to keep her waiting. Part 3 Most nights the liquor can make the voices quiet, but not tonight. Tonight they were screaming, screaming so loud that not even the third bottle of rum could make them silent. They bounced off the damp stone walls of the dungeon, and mingled with the hysterical laughter of the madmen in the holding cells below, giving Bunnick a splitting headache. He reached for the bottle and found it almost completely dry, so he smashed it against the wall. Thousands of little glass shards exploded into existence and showered onto the floor, changing shape and becoming the familiar little demons that usually accompanied the voices. They whooped and giggled and danced around in the dirt, stabbing at it with their little horns and pincers while they laughed at Bannock's misfortune, like they did most other nights. But tonight was different. Tonight there was this horrible, clawing sensation crawling up Bannock's spine, like a snake had buried itself in his neck and was slithering around under his skin, whispering to him along with the voices, warning him of impending disaster, which he did his best to ignore. Oi, Bannock, he heard someone say. He turned his head to see Ralph, one of his fellow guardsmen and probably the closest thing he had to a friend, coming down the corridor with an unpleasant expression painted across his already unpleasant face. The boss will have your hides if he finds you drinking on the job again, so don't go announcing it by smashing the damn bottles for the whole asylum to hear, you fucking fool. Bannock regarded him with a roll of his eyes. Oh, that deaf, blind old bastard. Couldn't find his beggar with both hands if he was pissing. Quit whining like an old crow. He shot back. Well, you might not care about this job, Bannock, but some of us have got kids to feed. Have a care, why don't you? Them kids ain't ugly enough to be yours. They're probably the landlords, Bannock said, the rum starting to get the better of him. You know this is why no woman will have you, Bannock. You're a miserable, mean old drunk who hardly works. All you do is stare at nothing all night and drink yourself stupid. <laughs> it's a wonder the rum hasn't killed you yet grunted Ralph in reply as he settled into his post on the other side of the door, leading to the asylum's lower dungeons. Bannock hardly heard him, though. His attention was held by the little demon scurrying across the floor that only he could see. They moved about haphazardly, along the walls, on the floor, all over Ralph's face. One crawled its way into Ralph's left ear, and then crawled out of his right eye. Oof, it made Bannock gag. Hey, don't go puking all over the floor yelled Ralph indignantly as Bannock fell off the rotting wooden stool that supported him and landed face first against the damp stone. That was when all the voices went silent, only to be replaced by the sound that Bannock was terrified of. It was quiet at first, like the beating of a drum some distance away, but it still turned his blood cold. He was out of time. He had to run. 
even as drunk as he was, he scrambled to his feet and sprinted down the corridor as if the Prince of Hunger himself were at his heels. He could vaguely make out the sound of Ralph's voice, demanding an explanation of where the fuck he was going. He had no time to reply. The drumming was growing louder in his ears, almost as if it were coming from just down the corridor behind him. He needed to leave the asylum immediately, but he wasn't sure if he could leave in time turned right at the end of the hallway and ran past a row of occupied holding cells to his right as the prisoners within spat profanities at him while running past them. He caught glimpses of their faces out of the corners of his now bloodshot eyes. Some were relatively normal, others were distorted and deformed and took on shapes that Bannock could recognize from the past. In the face of one of them, Bannock saw his father on the night he died complete with blood pouring from his lips while his cloudy and vacant eyes declared a silent kind of accusation. In another, he saw his mother, her eyes bloated and red from the steady stream of tears that flowed down her rosy cheeks as she begged the Lord's men not to harm her son. But it wasn't his fault that he was not wicked, just mad. A cry that had ultimately fallen on deaf ears. In the face of yet another prisoner, he beheld the black wolf that had carried away his infant sister into the night, with bits of her flesh and blood still caked on its yellow mouth. He'd made it to the outer courtyard of the asylum, when the drumming that haunted his every nightmare seemed to be right at his heels, almost indistinguishable from his own heartbeat, and mixed in with that sound he could hear the low growl of the wolf, hungry and impatient. His own eyes began to fill with tears. Please... Not here, not now, I beg you. But the wolf would not be reasoned with. Too long had it languished in its prison, and now tonight, with the newfound strength given to it by the silver light of its sister moon, the wolf ran free. The next morning, as the first light of dawn washed the tall spires of Fort Vigilance in a dim, iridescent glow that reflected off the misty waters of the Valrune River that ran some distance below the tall hill on which the fort lay, which gave the entire settlement the faint appearance of enchantment. Were it not for the shrill, ear-piercing screams of the terrified onlookers that echoed from the marketplace near the fledgling city's centre, one could have almost called it peaceful. No one was quite sure who first found the bodies, but given how many of them there were, and how thoroughly and grotesquely they'd been mutilated, it could well have been anyone in the settlement. Later investigations into the matter that would come to be called the greatest massacre in the settlement's history called it the Red Morning because of the sheer amount of blood that had saturated nearly every corner of the marketplace at dawn that day. Whatever had happened in the city overnight had begun sometime after sundown. The city's daytime watchmen reported nothing irregular in the city streets, while the night watchmen for the most part agreed that the chaos began shortly after their shifts had begun. The screaming of people in agony had started in the eastern end of the market, rousing many hundreds in the city from sleep to defend themselves. These people then rushed to the market with whatever weapons they could find in an attempt to track down whatever had invaded their city, only to be swiftly dragged into the shadows and savagely butchered one by one. By the day's end, 57 of the fort citizens would be confirmed dead, and another 34 maimed beyond recognition. The survivors had little to say about the attacks, that was useful to authorities anyway. Most were totally incoherent. Some spoke of a massive shadow moving through the darkness like some foul wind, 
faster than the eye could follow, while others spoke of glistening fangs and the guttural, hungry growls of some wild beast. Tommy Lachance, however, would learn of none of this until much, much later on. He was just as surprised and aghast as everyone else when he first laid eyes on the corpses, though he was perhaps a bit more reserved about expressing it. He had not slept since before his encounter with Prince Thane, and fatigue lay heavy on his shoulders. He slouched in the saddle as he passed through the settlement's gates, looking like a tormented ghost returning from hell itself. Tommy's raven-black hair was soaked in sweat, and his emerald-green eyes were cloudy with exhaustion. Under his arm, he held the stone case given to him by the devious vampire prince, which felt as if it had tripled in weight along the journey back. Tommy had originally intended to ride straight to the fort proper and meet with Isaac Thorgold. Isaac was an ornery old bastard, but he was also indisputably one of the best vampire killers in Nalgoth the closest thing the cause had to a leader. Before Isaac, there were no professional vampire hunters, just ragtag groups of farmers and former soldiers armed with local superstitions. Isaac brought them together and made them a true fighting force, showed them how to track the leeches to their nests, how to recognize the ones that hid among the crowd, and, most importantly, how to kill them when you find them. The men respected him, some even called him Many Fangs because of his habit of collecting the teeth from his slain foes. As it turned out, however, there was no need to go all the way to the fort to speak to Isaac. He stood in the market square, fully armoured, with twenty of his best men at his back, trying to keep order amidst the gathering crowd of onlookers. Directly across from Isaac stood a gathering of perhaps eight or nine men in crimson robes, with their heads bowed in prayer. At the head of this gathering stood an elderly man whose robes were trimmed with gold, and on his head he wore what appeared to be a makeshift crown of thorns that dug into his head, causing him to bleed. With his right hand he pointed to the mutilated bodies that littered the street behind Isaac and his men, while he preached with a booming voice one would not expect from a man of his age. See how the arrogance of man hath laid him low. Is this not the prophecy made true before our very eyes? Was it not foretold that those who denied the truth of the blood would find it spilled upon the earth? Were we not warned that the serpent would return to exact vengeance upon those who would murder his kindred? Frightened murmurs spread throughout the crowd as the old man spoke, most denouncing what he said, while others seemed to wonder if there was a truth in his words. Isaac stood staring at the man in silence for several moments, with his grey brows curled in displeasure. Before Bela a brutish giant of a man with a temper to match, stepped forward with his hand on his sword. Let me kill him, General. Him and his leech lovers must have had a hand in this, the man growled. Isaac held up his hand to halt Baelor's advance, and we don't know that for sure. He then turned and strode up to the crimson-robed old man, so they were face to face. That's quite enough sermons for today, Hera. Runyors must disperse and return to your temple so we can do our jobs, he said evenly. What will you do if I will not be silent? Will you murder me in broad daylight, or would you slay me in the night with your coward's knife? Isaac did not skip a beat in his response. You and yours are citizens of this fortress, and will be treated with all the respect and dignity you are owed. But make no mistake here, if I find out that you and your little cult had anything to do with this travesty, I will personally toss your corpse into the Valdru. 
The two aging men stared each other down for several moments before Hera broke the silence. It is not me or mine that you have to blame for this tragedy, many thanks. If you wish to place the blame, then place it with thine own malignant soul, he said in resignation. As he spoke, the chime of a bell rang clear in the distance. Tommy knew this to be the sound of the Bell of the Redeemer, which hung from the highest point of the temple on the western edge of Fort Vigilance, calling its worshippers to prayer. At this, Hirath turned away from Isaac without another word and marched towards the bell's chimes with his crimson robe cotier in tow, their passage unobstructed by the crowds of people around them who recoiled away from them as if they were a nest of vipers rather than a gathering of men. As they receded from vision, Tommy made his way to Isaac with an ashen expression painted across his face. When Isaac saw him approach, his face lit up with happiness and relief for the briefest of moments, before melting back into the solemn face of a commanding officer ready to receive a report. Tell me good news, Tommy. I've heard quite enough bad news already, and it isn't even midday. Tommy at first said nothing merely took the time to dismount from his horse and nearly toppled over to the cobblestone ground in the process. Isaac caught him by his shoulder as he fell, showcasing his remarkable reflexes despite his many years, and helped him to steady himself until he could stand on his own. What's this you've got with you? he asked, gesturing to the stone case. Tell me Thrain's head is in that box, Tommy. Tell me the demon is vanquished implored Isaac, with genuine hope creeping into his voice. The sad, forlorn look in Tommy's eyes told Isaac the answer even before he shook his head. What is it then? What happened out there? Out with it. Tommy took a deep breath before he spoke. There's too much to explain, Isaac, and too many unwelcome ears out here. Isaac understood immediately and began barking orders for people to make way for them as they moved away from the stores of the market and past the cast-iron gates of the fortress into relative safety, listening to the soft, suspicious murmurs of the crowd all the way. "'Who's that?' some wondered. "'That's Thorgal's favourite hunter. Supposed to be one of the best in the business,' others replied. "'If he's so good, why wasn't he here protecting us when the night creatures came?' "'I haven't seen him here in weeks.' I'd given him up for dead. Oh, I heard some of the other hunters say he was as good as dead, given a suicide mission, they said. Then how's he still breathing? Only one way a hunter comes back alive from hunting the undead with nothing to show for it. What's that he's got in his arms? Maybe a gift from his new master. Isn't he a pervert? Well, can't trust his like I say. Who knows what he's capable of? Uh, things were never this bad when we gave those creatures their tribute. Tommy had heard all of this before. He knew that when common people suffered a tragedy like this, they searched for something, or much more often someone, to blame for it. Someone they could hold responsible for their pain even when the true culprit was out of reach. But that didn't make their words sting any less, and even in his exhausted state of near delirium, they reawakened painful memories from his own past, best left buried. Oh, you're a curse upon this house, and upon my name, you nasty little shit. I've always known you were wrong. Oh, why couldn't the plague have taken you and left all the real men of the family breathing? You can cry all you want, my sweet boy, but you won't fool me. I know you like it. Why did you leave her alone? Murderer! Sharp barbs grew out from the days past and opened old festering wounds. But 
Tommy did his best to push these spectres away from his thoughts with practice vigour and brought his focus back to the present. To the welcoming sight of the training courtyard he'd spent the latter half of his youth in, as well as the embroidered red flames of the banners lining the stone walls that against his better judgement he'd come to associate with feelings of safety and the harsh metal hiss of the fortress's gate as it clunked shut behind them, dividing he, Isaac and Baylor, who had accompanied them from the market, from the rest of the world outside, however temporarily. Isaac first turned to Baylor. Go to the ramparts and ready the bastards. We have no way of knowing if this attack is an isolated incident or the beginning of a siege. Baylor's face took on a slightly offended expression at being dismissed, as he clearly wanted to hear Tommy's tale as much as Isaac, though propriety would not allow him to say as much. As if aware of his thoughts, Isaac reassured him. I swear to you, Baylor, we will find the ones responsible for this bloodshed. If Tommy's report has information that you need to hear, I will tell you of it myself, but right now this report is from my ears only. See to the men and get us ready to defend ourselves. I'm trusting you with this. Baylor gave a reluctant nod of acknowledgement and then hurried up the stone steps to the right of the gate, ascending up to the fortress's ramparts and disappearing from sight. Once he was out of earshot, Isaac turned his attention back to Tommy. It's just you and I now, boy. Walk with me and tell me everything from the beginning. Tommy took a deep breath before beginning his tale, and over the course of a few hours, he told his mentor everything about the decadence he'd witnessed at the villa of the countless people the vampire held under his sway, of the disembodied whispers that haunted him in the building's corridors, of his almost certain death in the ballroom, of Prince Thrain's cryptic words of warning, of his uncharacteristic display of mercy, and of his strange gift. By the time Tommy was finished, he and Isaac found themselves on the high balcony of the Tower of Vigilance, the highest point the settlement had to offer, overlooking the rest of the settlement and the vast green valley that surrounded it below. Tommy had placed the stone box on the floor of the balcony and opened its lid to display its contents to Isaac, who cast distrusting glances at it with his cloudy grey eyes as he paced back and forth, deep in thought. After several minutes passed with no other words exchanged between the two men, Tommy spoke. What do you make of it, Master? he asked. I think that Thrain's words are a snake's venom. He's not to be trusted, responded Isaac, his voice thick with disdain. But his actions confused me, Master. He had no cause to spare my life, yet he did. Perhaps he needed you alive to carry some curse back to the heart of his enemies through this chest. Perhaps. After another short pause, Tommy elected to change the subject. How did the leeches breach the city walls? Each stone is marked by our mystics. They have never been able to do so before. Displeasure, worry, and confusion made the wrinkles on Isaac's face ever more prominent as he replied. I don't know, Tommy. Something about this whole mess feels... different. Different and wrong. How do you mean? It's the bodies, Tommy. I've never seen vampire attacks like this, ever. Blood everywhere, painting everything. Flesh, organs, and even whole bones missing. Leeches don't do that. Even when they do make a mess of their kills even when they're only killing for sport. It's not in their nature to waste so much blood. To spill so much of it and not drink a single drop is unthinkable among their kind. A question then came to Tommy's mind, that he asked absentmindedly before he could think better of it. 
and he regretted asking it as soon as it had passed his lips. Would it have been unthinkable to you when you walked among them? Isaac reacted to this question as if he'd been struck physically, his whole body jerking in place before his eyes drifted to the floor. Yes, which is why you must trust me when I say that something truly strange is afoot here, he said quietly. I do trust you, Master. How many times must I tell you not to call me that boy? There are no servants or masters here. Forgive me. Never mind that. We need to focus on our next steps. The enemy is several steps ahead of us already, and could very well still be in the city. First and foremost, we must find where the attacks began and identify the first people that were killed. That will tell us the most about what actually happened last night and what we're up against. Tommy nodded in acknowledgement. What should we do with this? Tommy asked, pointing to the still open stone case and the ancient looking branch it housed. Isaac strode over to the case, scooped out the branch and tossed it over the edge of the balcony. Both men watched in silence as it fell into the waters of the Valdrun below. I'll be damned if we keep anything from that twisted creature within these walls, Isaac growled with contempt. He then turned back to Tommy. Go, rest boy, get your strength back, and as soon as you're able, go out into the city and find out what happened here. Report back to me anything you find out. Tommy nodded once again and left his mentor alone on the balcony without another word. As he descended the steps to the living quarters, the full weight of his exhausting journey fell upon him, and a thick haze filled his vision. He wasn't even really sure if he'd made it back to his bed when sleep took a hold of him. Part 4 The swamps and marshes of southern Nelgoth were harsh, unforgiving places even at the best of times. Thick, crystal-white fog hung in the air nearly year-round. Even the most experienced traveller was at constant risk of getting trapped in mud pits that rose up to the knees, or of being pulled into the bog by hungry animals that ate whatever they could get a hold of, or catching a deadly illness from one of the countless insects that swarmed through the air and none of these dangers even began to touch on the true evil that made its home in the fog. For generations, uncounted men who'd lived on the swamp's borders told stories of ghosts that wandered the swamps, forever crying out in mourning for the lives they'd lost there, and of the crone, a cruel and cunning demoness whose sorcerous song weakened the veil that separates the living from the dead, and who wore the face of an old woman and feasted on the hearts of lost children. Selen knew these stories were mostly nonsense, the fevered tales of frightened fishermen who knew no better. She also knew that at the heart of these tales was the sorceress Arabelle, a woman she once revered above all others, and called Mother. Her stomach curdled at the thought of laying eyes on her again, and the baleful cries of wolves out in the distance as she made her way through the fog did little to make her feel better about the impending reunion. How long had it been since she'd left the castle? Was she on the right path, or did she get turned around somehow? Did Arabelle even still reside in that same forsaken cave she had when Selene had left her? Selene's heart told her that she did, that even after all these decades, Arabelle had not changed a bit, that she would still be the cold, uncompromising force of nature that she'd always been, an ever-devoted servant to the forest gods of old which meant she wouldn't dare stray far from the fountain of her power. 
Despite this knowledge, however, doubt still circled Selene like vultures. She found her mind wandering back to her days, learning the craft at her mother's feet, of the sacrifices she'd made to be free of her, and of how truly small and powerless she felt in her presence. She tried to tell herself that things were different now, that the cursed old woman held no power over her, that she was an apprentice no longer. But the more she told herself these things, the more they began to sound like lies. She found herself wishing now more than ever that Alistor was still by her side, and she allowed herself to wonder where he was at that very moment. Her mind conjured up the formless, twisting void she sometimes saw in her dreams, that Alistor himself had told her was his birth home once, long ago. How could anyone exist in a place such as that and not go mad? She'd asked him. The tired old cat had regarded the question incredulously. How can anyone exist in a place such as this and not go mad? Don't patronize me, Alistor. At least in this world we have a ground to stand on. That had made him chuckle. No being can choose where his existence begins, Selene. Only whether or not he wants to keep existing. For many eons, that world you denounced was all I knew, and I loved it as dearly as you love this little blue ball. Blue ball? This world is like a flat surface, with a firmament above it and earth below it. Are you a fool, spirit? He chuckled again. Of course it is, mistress. A fool I must be. Snapping twigs and the rustle of leaves somewhere nearby brought her mind back to the present, and she recoiled from it as if she were about to be struck. A large toad bounced out of a nearby puddle and stopped for a moment to regard Selene with wide orange eyes that glowed eerily in the moonlight before it hopped out of sight, leaving her feeling rather foolish herself. She then took some time to get her bearings and to observe her surroundings, keeping a sharp eye out for any landmarks that would let her know Mother's Cave was nearby. What she saw was mostly dead trees and fog which was far from encouraging. The path she'd been travelling stretched as far as her eyes could follow, and the way back somehow seemed darker than the way forward. Cold raindrops came down to pelt her hood slowly at first, then in a downpour as the low roar of thunder sounded overhead. If she were the kind of person who believed in luck, she'd have cursed how rotten hers was. But she didn't believe in luck, she found it much more likely that this sudden storm was an extension of her mother's will, an expression of her twisted humour, since she was surely aware that Selene would be dreading this meeting with her, meant to make her even more uneasy, or perhaps to distract her so she would lose her way in the marshes. She refused to give the decrepit witch the satisfaction. Powerful winds knocked her about in every direction, and the sharp crack of lightning rang deafeningly in her ears, but she pressed forward with purpose in every step. She'd only walked a short distance further down the path when she came upon the first of the weeping trees. At a glance, they were no different than any of the other dead or dying trees that dotted the marshlands, especially on a stormy night like this. But when one stepped closer, one could behold the tormented human faces that lay where the trunk met the tree's branches, look into the hollowed-out spaces where the eyes of the face should be, and almost hear the anguish of the human soul bound within. Selene did not know how many weeping trees existed within the swamp. She saw them rarely and had only ever witnessed the creation of one, an experience that haunted her nightmares even now, 
centuries after. It had been a dark night, not unlike this one, when her mother had roused her from her sleep to show her a hapless man she'd captured out in the bog. An intruder and a defiler, mother had called him. Apparently she'd happened upon him as he was chopping down a sapling for firewood. An inexcusable offence to her, since she owed her vast powers and her millennia-spanning lifespan to a cabal of ancient and powerful spirits that lived within every tree, leaf, moss, animal, fungus, every bit of soil of the swamp, and made themselves out to be gods. He has violated our sacred ground, and the old bones have decreed retribution. He will repay the forest with blood, body, and soul. It was then that Mother had produced from her cloak the thorn, a sharp, jagged root that was as deadly as any blade, and began to carve the ruins of sacrifice into the man's skin while Selene, against her better judgment, held him in place with her own magic. He screamed at first, sobbing and wailing like a child rather than an adult, until Mother had her spiders sew his mouth shut while she completed her grim work. When she was finished, the man was a bloody, shaking, sobbing mess, and he would have passed out several times over from the pain had Arabelle not kept him conscious throughout the ordeal with her magic. She then handed the thorn to Selene, Place it in his heart, apprentice, and from his life's blood our new sapling will grow, she'd said with a crooked, menacing smile. Selene reluctantly took the thorn from her mother's hand and turned her gaze to the man who was to be her victim. Before she could stop herself, she met his eyes. Though his mouth was shown such, his torn, teary expression said everything he wanted to say. Please, please no. Go on, apprentice. The old ones are not a patient lot, mother had ordered. Selene moved the thorn into position above the man's heart and stood completely still for several moments before she turned back to Arabelle with a pleading look in her eyes. But, Mother, it was only a sapling. Arabelle's expression morphed from one of pleasure to one of irate disgust. She strode over to Selene and knocked her to the ground with the back of her hand. Weak little fool. The forest grants no blessings to fragile hearts. She scoffed as she retrieved the thorn from Selene's hand and drove it into the man's chest. The man shook violently as death took hold of him, before he went still. They left the body there in the mud, with the thorn still protruding from his chest. Though Mother had later on punished Selene for her weakness, they never spoke of the incident again. When Selene returned to the spot some time later on her own, she saw that a healthy-looking sapling had indeed sprouted up from the murdered man's corpse, one that gazed back at her with his same despairing, tear-laden face. Looking upon it again now, so many centuries later, she couldn't help but wonder if it recognized her. Its bare branches swayed in the howling wind, almost giving Selene the impression that it was reaching out for her, and guilt overwhelmed her. She turned away to continue down the path when a frantic and desperate voice cut through the wind. No, no, please, don't go. Don't leave me here again. She snapped back around to face the weeping tree and was met with silence. On its face, where just a moment earlier was an expression of abject sorrow, was now a wide, ecstatic grin, as if it had just heard a wonderful joke. 
and she realized that Mother was playing her old games again. She cursed herself for allowing her mind to wander, and for letting Arabelle play with her emotions. And she spit on the tree's wooden grin and made her way further down the path into the swamp, vowing not to lose focus again. She was close now. She could feel it. Could feel Arabelle's presence hanging in the air like a miasma, so thick it almost made her gag. She knew that Mother was watching. She finally came upon the cave some time later, she found her expectations were entirely correct. It hadn't changed a bit over the years. Surrounded by bog water on three sides and hidden behind thick foliage, one had to look very closely to see the entrance from across the water, and once noticed, one would have a difficult time not comparing it to the hungry moor of some giant beast waiting for its next victim. As Selene approached the water's edge, she took notice of the sickly green glow that emanated from deep within the cave, could faintly make out the sound of her mother's voice as it rose in song. The song Selene knew well from childhood, the lost child of spring. To hear mother sing was always a curious and unsettling thing, because her cruel, haggard appearance did not match the beauty of her voice. Her voice was high and full of youth, almost angelic in its ability to calm and delight the listener. Selene had fallen asleep to her mother's voice countless times as a child, and hearing it again after so many years stirred up feelings that were difficult to silence. Nevertheless, Selene took her first tentative steps towards the cave, as the notes of the song became clearer and clearer, and the waters of the bog itself seemed to part as she approached. Part 5 The first thing Bannock became aware of as consciousness returned to him was how cold he felt and of the rush of water all around him. He opened his mouth to take a breath and found his mouth filled with icy water, causing his eyes to shoot open. The blackness of dark and murky water filled his vision, and twisting snakes with gleaming red eyes circled all around him. He panicked at first and thrashed around wildly until he saw that the snakes drifted around him against the current of what must have been the river he was in. And just as the thought that such a task would not have been possible for real snakes entered his mind, they began to speak with the familiar voices he so often heard in his head. It happened again, they cackled gleefully. Yes, again. Again the man was too weak to hold back the beast. Again the beast had its way with innocent flesh. Bannock ignored them. He learned long ago that there was no point in trying to argue with or correct them, they seemed to exist only to cause him pain, and if he acknowledged them at all, they were winning. He thrashed upwards, trying to get his head above the water, and was relieved to find the task relatively simple. He was definitely in a river. Valrun, he guessed. Aside from that, he saw only darkness and trees past the banks of the river around him. He must have drifted some distance from Fort Vigilance, and he had no idea where he was now, but he resolved to find out. He began to swim toward the shore when he noticed for the second time in the past few nights that the voices of his mind abruptly became silent, a thing that only happened when tragedy was close at hand. Was the wolf trying to get out again so soon? That had never happened to Bannock before, and the thought of it made him nauseous. He ducked his head beneath the water while he swam to see if the demon snakes were still present, and found that they were all missing save one. The one that remained was far different from the others. 
Where the others had been small, this one was massive. Its body was as thick as a tree trunk, and was so long that Bannock couldn't even see its tail. And where the others had gleaming red eyes, this one's eyes were pitch black with crimson red pupils in their centre. It moved against the current without effort, and regarded Bannock with a predatory glance. Bannock swam desperately for the riverbank, while the snake made its way closer to him at a languid pace, as if it was not concerned at all that he might escape from it. When Bannock did finally get to the river's edge, he clawed at the wet soil frantically and leapt out of the water with all the force he could muster. He laughed out loud victoriously. Not tonight, sea monster. His laughter was cut short when the snake's shield-sized head rose out of the water and slithered onto the shore. Before Bannock could turn and run, it snapped forward like a lightning strike and sunk its fangs into his leg. Pain shot through his body and he fell over from it. He began to struggle and kick against the mighty snake until, to his surprise, it pulled away from him. Rather than return to the river, however, it rose out of it further and encircled him with its long body, slowly, without actually constricting around him as some snakes would. Bannock clutched his leg in an attempt to stop the bleeding, though he didn't see much point in doing that. He was sure that his life was coming to an end, that this monster from the river would swallow him whole, and he would just vanish without it beneath the waters of a Valroon, forgotten and unloved. Oddly enough, though, he felt at peace with that, like the weight of the world was off his shoulders. At least he wouldn't have to hear the voices anymore. At least the wolf would die with him. He lay back against the ground and turned his head to see the black eyes of the creature that would devour him. Well, what are you waiting for? He asked it expectantly. The snake regarded him with what could have been called a curious expression, if one could ascribe such a thing to a giant serpent. A voice then filled Bannock's mind, one that he'd never heard before, that sounded low and ancient, clear but also distant, as if it was travelling from a great distance away like an echo. What strange feast presents itself to me tonight? Long have I reached out to the world above with my essence to feed on the lowly beasts, and all their blood is known to me, but, dare I say, I have never tasted blood like yours before. What are you, creature? Bannock was at a point beyond confusion. Was this giant snake speaking to him? He was at a loss for words. I have yet to take your tongue, creature, so you will use it to speak. I will not ask again. What are you? I... Bannock, he said hesitantly. The voice scoffed. I care not what you are called, creature, for I already know what to call you. I call you slave, for that is what you are, as is every creature that walks my lands. I would know what you are, for I can see only what you are not, not a ban, nor a beast. This river is on your lands. Again the voice scoffed. This river, the forest around it, the valleys that surround it, and the mountains that surround the valleys, all of it is mine, and I will reclaim it from the betrayers, harlots, and arrogant slaves that think to usurp it from me. But first I will know what you are. I am a cursed thing. That response seemed to have a calming effect on the snake or at least momentarily made it forget whatever thoughts angered it so. 
When the voice spoke again, it sounded relaxed and amused, as if Bannock had just shared an inside joke with him. Aren't we all? What do you want from me, demon? If you mean to eat me, then just do it. Do not doubt that I could, creature, if it were my desire. I could sustain your pitiful life for centuries while I amuse myself with your torment, or just as easily devour your very soul through the red mead that spills from your throats. But that would be a waste. You are a rare creature, and I am in need of champions to serve my will in the coming nights. You shall be my claws in the world above, until I see fit to release you from my service. Before Bannock could respond, the snake opened its maw and dragged its long, jet-black tongue from the bridge of his nose to his hairline, leaving an awful, burning sensation as it went. Where the snake's tongue had touched him, Bannock's skin turned black. He screamed out in pain and thrashed around wildly in the sand while the snake regarded him dispassionately. Now you will hear my words and obey. When you can walk again, you will journey south with haste to the Cradle of Dawn, Retrieve the young sorceress that resides in the castle beyond the marshlands, alive, and bring her to my resting place, where you will place her beating heart upon my grave. When the pain had subsided enough for Bannock to respond, he did so through clenched teeth. How will I know her when I find her? You will feel her presence through the mark I have placed upon you. Where will I take her when I have her? Where is this grave of yours? When the time is right, I will guide you to it. By what name do I call you, demon? You know mine, and if I am to serve you, I must know what to call you. You need only call me master. Now, go, creature, and be thankful for my mercy, for you shall not receive it a second time, and do not think that you can disobey me now. The mark I have placed upon you calls out to me forevermore. There is nowhere you can go now that my eyes will not see. And with that, the massive serpent slithered silently back into the Valrune and disappeared under the current, leaving Bannock alone on the riverbank, dumbfounded with rage and confusion. He stood there for several moments, cursing his rotten luck, before he turned and limped into the dense tree line of the forest behind him, while he searched something that might help him slow the bleeding of his leg, and for the first time in his life, he was grateful to hear only the mad voices of his head when they returned. Part 6 Tommy rolled out of his straw-stuffed mattress in the bowels of Fort Vigilance not long after sundown. He knew this because he saw the familiar faces of the city's daytime watchmen soundly asleep in the cots next to his, and he noted the strong stench of alcohol on more than a few of them. He took a moment to reflect on the ironic fact that, much like the undead, he'd spent his adult life tracking and killing. He was himself very much a creature of the night. He had a hard time remembering the last time he took in a sunrise, or just took a day for himself to wander around, interact with normal people and do nothing particularly productive, and that made him slightly sad. He didn't allow his mind to linger on such thoughts for long, however, and quickly found himself washing his face in the water basin on the northern end of the barracks, in an attempt to not only clean his grime-covered face, but also to wake himself up. Not long after, he was in the armory, outfitting himself with the tools of his trade. The armory was easily the most heavily guarded and closely watched part of the fortress, with long racks of blades of every length, width and metal, be it steel, silver or iron on every wall, 
and meticulously clean counters stocked with crossbows, spring-loaded firing mechanisms that spat out silver blades at blinding speeds, and even the mysterious and highly experimental hand cannons which, as its name implied, functioned much like a cannon, using black powder to shoot metal projectiles with tremendous speed and force. The principal difference between this device and an actual cannon being that this one could fit in the palm of one's hand. Many of the other hunters, especially the younger ones, had begun to treat the things as symbols of status, and thusly spent small fortunes on obtaining them. Tommy didn't care for them much himself. He felt that they made their owners overconfident and over-reliant on them. If they suddenly stopped working for whatever reason without the owner's knowledge, then his life could very well be put in mortal peril. Something Tommy made no bones about telling the cannon's intrepid inventor, Anna Grayson, the dedicated and ever-watchful caretaker of the armory, who responded indignantly. Nothing I make will break down in the field, she'd said, and she meant it. Anna was a voluptuous and intelligent young woman, proud of her craft and damn good at it, which was one reason why she'd taken Tommy's criticism of her work particularly hard. Another being that, though you'd probably have had to fight her to get her to admit it aloud, she was fond of Tommy, whom she'd been raised alongside since her fifteenth year, and had gone out of her way to let him know as much in the past before he'd begun be more open about his romantic tastes. For his part, he did his best to explain this to her gently. She'd had difficulty understanding what he was trying to tell her at first, as most people did, but being the bright young woman that she was, she caught on quickly and responded with an exaggerated sigh of disappointment, along with a somewhat successful attempt to conceal her pain at the rejection with humour. Maybe one of these nights I'll turn you then, she'd said. That's a dangerous thing to say in this fortress, Anna. Very easy to misinterpret, Tommy had said in response, and they'd both laughed. Tonight, however, Anna seemed far too preoccupied to laugh about much of anything. She darted back and forth between the racks of weapons with a thick, leather-bound ledger in her hands, carefully making notations that Tommy could only guess the nature and purpose of. Her whole appearance from her dishevelled open hair, soot-blackened hands and face to the sad, guilty look in her sapphire-coloured eyes, gave him the distinct impression that she'd been working without pause since early morning, which was not unexpected given recent events, but nevertheless bothered Tommy. He did not like seeing his childhood friend blaming herself for the past day's tragedy, as his instincts told him she was, since she often boasted that her weapons could keep Fort Vigilant secure against any threat. He stood at the doorway of the armory's entrance in silence, trying to think of something he could say to cheer her up, or at least momentarily take her mind off the red morning, and thought of nothing particularly witty or comforting before she took notice of him. I've got your usual orders laid out on the table over there, Tommy. Cleaned, sharpened, and oiled up for battle, and I've already signed them out for you, so you can just take them and get to business, she said offhandedly, not taking her eyes off her ledger. What happened last night was not your fault, Anna. It didn't have anything to do with what the guardsmen were armed with. Sometimes awful things just happen. Things that no one could have predicted or prepared for. This was one of those things. She stopped writing and let out a deep breath. We should have been prepared for it, Tommy. We aren't some helpless farming village out in the sticks or some careless bunch of mercenaries. We're fought fucking vigilance. 
People everywhere in this country look to us for hope, to show them that we don't have to let the monsters have their way with the world, that we can fight back. Well, how can we expect anyone to believe in what we're doing here if we can't defend ourselves within our own walls? The people will always have hope, Anna. This attack will not change that. And if we want people to believe in us, then we have to show them that we can get back up after we get knocked down. And we can't do that by obsessing over what's already over and done. We have to move forward. Anna went quiet for a moment before she spoke again. And when she did, she sounded as if she were on the verge of tears. Damn the demons that did this, Tommy. The darkest pits in hell are too good for them. So many people. I knew some of them. Rory from the bakery with his burned bread and his dumb smile. <laughs> Matilda, that rude old bat that worked in the kitchens who never really liked me but always made sure I had something to eat. The pain they must have been in at the end. Oh, it's unforgivable, Tommy. We can't let them get away with this. We won't. I promise. Anna took a deep breath before she spoke again. I know. And thank you for trying to cheer me up. That's more than what most around here would do. Because you've always got your nose in some book. Or you're frolicking around the forges playing in the soot, making yourself unpresentable, or doing some other nonsense unsuitable for a lady. You'll never find a husband that way, said Tommy, doing his best impression of the grouchy, short-tempered, and exceedingly proper governess Isaac had employed to help raise the both of them some years back. That made Anna crack an earnest smile. I'll still find one faster than you. That stung a bit. But he was happy to see her smile. Well, I best get to it, I suppose. The leeches aren't going to hunt themselves down. Anna gave him a nod of acknowledgement and went back to furiously making notations in her ledger with renewed vigour while he made his way to the long table that held his equipment. Twelve silver blades of various lengths, though none of them were longer than his forearm, the black eggs that were not eggs in a literal sense, but rather small painted glass orbs filled with an acidic solution meant to be thrown at an enemy's face, and his secret weapon, the spring blades, sleek clockwork mechanisms that attached to the wrists and fired silver bolts with a deadly precision. He outlined himself with quick, practiced ease and left the armory with purpose in his step. Now began the least thrilling yet most important part of his job, the investigative work. He would have to read the night watchman's reports of that night thoroughly, then see the scenes of the attacks himself and find potential witnesses. It would be daunting work, but Tommy was accustomed to it, and like Isaac, he felt compelled to find out what new horrors the leeches had unleashed. He made his way from the eastern section of the fortress where the armory was, to the western section toward the Hall of Records, with no doubt in his mind that he was going to have a very long night. Part 7 Somewhere half a world away in the northernmost reaches of Nelgor, someone else was also coming to terms with an inevitably long night, though for vastly different reasons. Dark storm clouds gathered in Legion around a forlorn and forgotten tower nestled high in the mountains that rose out of the soil like a jagged blade. Long forsaken by mankind and not marked on any map, the tower was now known only to the dead and the undying as the Cradle of Night. And it was there that, just like they had in the nights of old, the immortals gathered. 
How much longer will we allow this to go on, Thrain? War is upon us. The omens are obvious. Now is the time to strike before the mortals can regroup, shouted General Calcius Lestain, as he beat his fist on the marble table upon which he and ten others clad in crimson armour, the likes of which had not been forged in uncounted centuries, when humans still whispered of the night kin. His voice echoed off the pale white walls of the ancient meeting chamber like a particularly belligerent chorus of thunder, giving Prince Feodor Thrain a headache. Though no one else at the table spoke immediately, Thrain knew that several, if not all, of what amounted to the vampire aristocracy of Nelgoth gathered here tonight had been asking the same question amongst themselves, and now their eyes were all on him, so he would have to tailor his response accordingly. When he did speak... His tone was not unlike that of a parent chastising a child that had spoken before thinking. War is it, Lestane. It's a very poor farmer that goes to war with his own livestock. Is that what you would have us be, Prince Thrain? Farmers? We were conquerors once. Nay, more than conquerors. We were their gods. They cowered and hid themselves from us once. Or have you forgotten... Have your warm-blooded pets made you forget your pride and dignity? How much longer will the humans encroach on our lands before you grow a spine? We should call for tribute. Thrain cut him off before he could finish, and this time his tone was one of warning. While it is wonderful that you can still find time to indulge in the luxury of nostalgia, Lestane, it is my duty to look toward the future. The world around us is changing fast, and we must change with it if we are to survive. If all we do is obsess over the past, then we will soon become the past ourselves. Then what exactly is the future you envision for us, Thrain? While the good general may be lacking in manners, he makes a fair point. If the mortals are to be our livestock, then how long do we intend to let the livestock run amok over our lands? When do we remind them who rules them? asked Countess Guinevere Delfina, a woman whose gentle-sounding voice and pleasant features obfuscated her ruthless nature. Thrain responded with a pause. I intend precisely the opposite. It is my hope that the humans forget us completely. Confusion and outrage painted the faces of those gathered around the table. Let the humans forget about them. Such a thing was anathema to the proud lords of the undead, to some sitting there, it was blasphemy. General Calcius stood up to leave before Thrain gestured for him to sit back down while he elaborated. My brothers and sisters in darkness, for too long we have clung to traditions that no longer serve the purposes they were intended to, and we have let the pride we have in what once was blind us to the power we could have going forward into the future. He reached into his pocket and produced a small, elongated device that looked like a cannon, and pointed it at one of the support pillars on the far end of the room before pulling a tiny lever located at the bottom of the device, which resulted in a sharp crack like thunder that startled everyone in the room. Smoke oozed from the device's barrel, and the pillar he'd been pointing at now sported a huge crack, with a metal projectile of some sort lodged in it. They call it the hand cannon. It is unrefined at the moment, and not many can afford it now, but the day will come soon when such devices will be mass-produced and may even replace the sword as the mortal weapon of choice. 
In just a few short centuries, the humans have gone from living in tents to this, and they will only continue to modernize and industrialize. If we continue to ignore the progress they've made and continue to try and be their proud overlords, they will hunt us to extinction. Fort Vigilance is just the first of many human cities that will rise against us, and as powerful as we are, they outnumber us, brothers and sisters. If we are to survive, we must acknowledge that the age of conquest by the sword is over, and embrace a new method of conquest. Looking around the table with calculating yellow eyes, he could see that he had the rapt attention of everyone present. So he let the silence linger for several agonizing moments for maximum effect before he leaned back into his seat and launched into a seemingly unrelated anecdote. Some decades ago, when I made my living traveling around and trading with the savage nations beyond the mountains, I made what was meant to be a three-night journey through the Archon Pass of the Eastern Mountains to purchase rare silks made by the tribes indigenous to that area. I favoured a journey through the pass rather than the official trade routes, because once you were deep enough in, there were a wealth of mining tunnels connecting both sides of the mountain that provided ample shelter from the sun at nearly all hours of the day. As it would turn out, though, this decision nearly cost me my life. Get to the point, Thrain, growled Calcius, wearing his frustration on his sleeve. Thrain continued unabated. In those nights, proper law and order had little influence in such remote areas, so one could expect to find bands of brigands nearly around every corner waiting to ambush the unsuspecting traveller with sword in hand and the intention of murdering them and absconding with their valuables. As fate would have it, one such band was waiting just within the pass for a lonely, undermanned caravan such as mine. Thrain's clawed fingers curled tightly around his obsidian throne, and his eyes closed as he lost himself in memory. They surrounded the wagon and shot the driver first, making the horses panic to the point that they toppled the whole thing over. The servant I had accompanying me had his head crushed in the crash, leaving me to deal with the brigands alone. At first they believed they killed all the wagon's passengers, so they approached carelessly to claim their spoils. They were not prepared for me. I painted the white mountain snow a beautiful shade of crimson with the entrails of perhaps two or three of the bandits before they realized what they were up against. And those that remained, a party of twenty or so, who I now know must have been deserters of one army or another, fell into a military formation that was rather difficult to penetrate in open combat, even for a child of the night. What I thought would be a quick culling became a prolonged contest of cunning and skill that lasted well over an hour as they pushed me deeper into the mountains and I killed them off one by one. By the end, only a few of them remained. Dawn was swiftly approaching and in my haste to escape into the safety of the mines, one of the brigands wounded me terribly. If they'd chosen to follow me into the mines that morning, they very well could have finished me off. But they were terrified of me, so they instead chose to paint the mine's entrance with symbols known to the local tribes as warnings of blood-drinking demons, and fled. Oh, I struggled on the floor of those mines, weak and at death's door for three nights before a band of hunters from one of the local savage tribes pulled me from the mines with the intention of executing me, since they'd read the warnings painted on the mine's entrance. 
I would have died if it were not for the timely intervention of a young man who identified himself as a fur trader with a relatively obscure company known as Thorgold and Sons. Apparently he and his family caravan had ventured into the mountains with much the same purpose that I had, and I quickly related to him the mostly true account of who I was, my purpose in the mountains, and of how my caravan had been attacked. This kind young man then negotiated with the hunters for my safe release, even though they argued that I must have been a monster due to the warnings painted on the mine entrance, to which the young man replied was utter hogwash, that blood-drinking demons were nothing but wives' tales for the uneducated, and that he would not let an innocent man be murdered over mere superstition. And within a fortnight, I was back in civilization with my business concluded. What does this have to do with our current predicament? wondered Delphina aloud. Thrain answered exuberantly. Well, while he spoke, it dawned on me that it would be utterly wonderful if all humans believed as such. Think about it, my brothers and sisters. If the vampire becomes a myth, then we will be able to move among the mortals with utter impunity. Instead of hunting us, they will defer to their natural instincts and go to war amongst themselves while we reap all the benefits. We could infiltrate their ruling bodies with ease, and once again be the lords of the night, albeit in secret. What became of the young man who bargained for your safety? asked Delphina, mildly curious. A thin smile spread slowly across Thrain's face. Though it would turn out that in order to rebuild my wounded body and recover my strength for the journey home, I had to feed on the band of hunters and the entirety of Thorgood and Sons, I repaid that young man for his kindness to me. As far as I know, he still lives to this day. Silence prevailed over the meeting hall for several moments before most everyone there expressed their agreement to varying degrees. All but one. No, shouted Lathias Thrain, the youngest of the lords gathered there and Theodoth's own son. This outburst caught everyone off guard and brought all eyes onto Lephias. I will not stand by and allow our bloodline to sink into cowardice. We should conquer the humans, not hide from them. Fairdorth regarded his own son with a look of annoyance that could quickly become dangerous, and questioned him with condescension. And <coughs> And how, son of mine, do you propose that we do that without courting our utter extinction? Or does your great wisdom not extend that far? Matthias replied with a speech of his own, that to those gathered felt suspiciously rehearsed. We recognize that we have long allowed ourselves to be led astray from true wisdom and power by those who seek to court power for themselves, and that in order to return to the might and glory this family once possessed, we must return to the old ways, the true old ways, and reunite with our true father. Everyone present knew what Lathias was suggesting, Fairdoth especially. He sat up from his seat and replied with venom dripping from his voice. Be very careful what you say next, boy. Your very life depends on it. You know nothing but whitewashed legends and polished stories. You never knew the man himself as I did. He is where he belongs and he will rot there. I know him better than you can imagine, father for the Prince of Hunger himself speaks to me in dreams. 
He tells me of your iniquities, past and present, and promises me that the time is nigh for the vampire to reclaim his place as the truest predator of Nelgoth. A collective chorus of nervous whispers and shocked gasps filled the chamber while Prince Thrain stood up from his throne. When he spoke again, he sounded drained and tired. Is that so, Lathias? Then surely he also told you what the outcome of this little spectacle of yours would be. Are you prepared for that? Lathias stood his ground and looked his father in the eye before he responded. I would have it no other way, my prince. Very well then, traitor. Have the traitor's death you so long for. In the blink of an eye, Thrain was across the room before Lathias could even draw his weapon, stuck his clawed hand deep into his chest and pulled out his wildly beating heart spilling black blood and bile all over the floor. Lathias stared down at his wound in horror, before closing his eyes and uttering his barely audible last words with unshakable devotion. My blood for you, father. And with that, he crumbled to the ground in a fleshy heap, and all the lords gathering around the table did their best not to pay attention as his body aged rapidly and then turned to ash and dust. Thrain took his son's still-beating heart and squeezed the black blood that dripped from it into his mouth, all present to see, before he tossed it aside and looked back to the lords around the table. Does anyone else have a speech prepared for us to hear this evening? His question was met with nervous silence that he took as an answer. Good. Part 8 so the proud child returns at last to swallow her pride, spoke the sorceress Arabelle, not even bothering to shift her gaze from the wild black cauldron that simmered before her to look at the daughter she had not seen in nearly a century. To Selene's eyes, she looked no different from the last time she'd seen her, dusty and feeble-looking, with matted dark hair that fell past her shoulders, a worn grey robe with forgotten incantations sewn into the embroidery careful stride that concealed a pronounced limp, and green eyes full of both contempt and loathing. Her expression was a mask of indifference, with the exception of a small grin that curled up on the side of her gnarled lips that spoke of her sinister intentions. Selene spoke quickly and dispassionately, wanting to conclude her business with Arabelle as quickly as possible. I am beset by visions, mother, visions of demons powerful beyond imagining. I seek your... Nivik Root, said Arabelle sharply, cutting her off and causing her to lose her train of thought. What? The Nivik Root girl, over there in the cupboard by the bed. Have the decades taken your hearing, or have you simply forgotten how to properly brew the elixirs of prophecy? I suppose I should have expected as much. I came here to seek your... I know what you seek, apprentice. The child with all the answers returns, looking for the answers she didn't have, and wants her mother to pay the price she cannot for them. And I will in time, apprentice, but first there are lessons to be learned. Now fetch me the damned Nivik root. Selene felt anger bloom in her chest, but she put it aside momentarily, and did as Arabelle asked. 
In quick, business-like fashion, she brushed past the grim idol's car from bone that hung from the cavern ceiling, opened the old cupboard, and retrieved the nivet root, a foul-smelling plant that was toxic to humans in high doses, but useful for inducing the calm and placid mental state required to peer into the ephemeral planes. She handed it to her mother quickly, and then recoiled, not wanting to touch the woman she detested most in life. If Arabelle noticed Selene's revulsion toward her, she did not speak of it. Instead, she tossed the plant into the brew and started picking open the fresh wounds in Selene's life. Where's that old cat that you stole from me? I have a stew recipe I think he'd be perfect for. Alistair left with me of his own accord. He would have nothing to do with you any longer. Odd he isn't now with you, then. He didn't seem like the kind to let you fan for yourself. He had important business to attend to, and couldn't accompany me. More important than being with you for our little reunion. <laughs> Nonsense. I think you lost him somewhere along the way. No doubt a result of your own weakness. It's sad to see how little the years have changed you, apprentice. I was just about to say the same to you, mother. Still the same bitter, decrepit, lonesome hag you've always been. <laughs> and I see you still try to hide your dull claws behind that sharp tongue. You haven't seen my claws yet, old woman. Arabelle gave off a hearty cackle. Mm, was that a threat? How the years have made you bold. I'd be proud if I wasn't so amused. Now, we must begin the incantations, and the circle must be complete before we attempt them. I trust you remember that much. She then gestured to the intricate circle of runes and glyphs she'd drawn around the cauldron, most of which Selene could not identify to her dismay, and the ones she could gave her serious misgivings about her decision to seek her mother's aid. Runes were much more than just symbols. Drawn properly, they were like beacons that called to specific spirits depending on their design, and the designs Arabelle had drawn around the cauldron were not meant to summon anything good. Do you mean to have me traffic with demons? I can think of quicker ways to kill myself, said Selene flatly. The answers you seek tonight are far removed from comfort and safety, apprentice. Did I not teach you that all things come with a price? Selene hesitated for only a moment before she knelt down and touched her fingertips to the edge of the circle and began chanting. Arabelle took a long knife from out of her cloak made a deep cut in her own palm and thrust it over the cauldron, letting her blood seep into the mixture, which reacted to it violently flaring up and partially spilling onto the floor, causing the runes around it to glow. Blood of the traitor to begin the circle, said Arabelle in a distant tone. She then strode over to Selene and stabbed her left palm with the same knife. Selene cringed in surprise and agony, but continued chanting nonetheless because she knew from experience that once a ritual had begun, it had to be followed through to completion uninterrupted, or the consequences would be dire. And blood of the betrayed to complete it. Arabelle then raised her hands and closed her eyes as the whole chamber became bathed in sickly green light. A strange haze then descended upon Selene's mind, and she felt as if she were watching what was unfolding around her from underwater. Around her on all sides stood horrible-looking creatures that vaguely resembled people, but with pronounced animalistic qualities, 
from a giant of a man with a boar snout and tusks, to a petite woman with scales and webbed fingers, and where her mother had stood only a moment earlier, now stood a massive red-eyed vulture wreathed in shadows. What frightened Selene the most, though, was the hot breath that travelled down the back of her neck, and the low growl of what sounded like a wolf. She continued to chant, however, and the beasts that circled her made no motion towards her, simply watching with contentment. The green glow that emanated from the cauldron became brighter and brighter, she chanted, and as it did, the demons that circled her turned their attention to it, holding out their hands as if in prayer. When Selene dared to look toward the light, the visions took hold of her, and she found herself sitting at the edge of a massive canyon that stretched as far as the eye could see, illuminated by pale green moonlight. By her side sat a large, grey-maned wolf with golden eyes. It made no moves toward her, simply sitting next to her contentedly, and when she made eye contact with it, the wolf maintained it with her for several moments before gesturing with its snout towards the canyon. When she looked back deeper into the canyon, she saw that, figuratively speaking, it was quite dead. No vegetation grew anywhere that she could see, and no water was anywhere to be seen. Bones littered the canyon floor like discarded tree branches, and mixed in with the bones were broken-down remnants of chariots, catapults, rusted-over bronze shields and swords, ancient forgotten flags still clutched in the bony fingers of long-dead soldiers. And then there were the snakes, hundreds of them, their scaly bodies glistening in the moonlight as they slithered from the canyon's edge deeper in, toward the center. Where stood two massive bronze statues, one of a man, the other of a woman, each with spears in hand that pointed toward the ground as if to halt the advance of anyone that wished to pass them, and behind them was a colossal door made of silver that bore hundreds, if not thousands, of inscriptions that Selene could not recognize. The snake slithered toward the door en masse, forming a writhing, hissing tidal wave at its base as they tried to slither under it to no avail. Then, Without warning, something smashed against the door from the inside with enough force to cause the whole structure to quake and create a thunderous sound that echoed throughout the canyon, though the door remained intact. The wolf at Selene's side then began to growl, as if to warn her of impending danger, when the voice of Selene's dreams rang clearly in her ears. Soon, traitor child. Soon. Part 9 Bannock had long since lost track of how deep into the forest he'd wandered, and the demons weren't much help. They scurried around the forest floor like insects in all directions, giving off their usual fits of maniacal laughter, which was more of a nuisance than anything else to a man trying to navigate himself through the deep woods. Rays of daylight had begun to pierce the forest canopy above, letting him know that morning had come and gone. His leg that had been wounded by the river still pained him terribly, but that was healing at an astounding rate, one of the very few blessings of being one with the wolf. He trotted along at a brisk pace, debating with himself whether or not he should head south as the creature he'd encountered at the Valrune had bid him to, and what his other options were, if he had any yet. Returning to Fort Vigilance now was almost undoubtedly a bad idea, since he had no way of knowing how much havoc the wolf had wrought there, and he had no particular desire to find out. He also had no doubt that the hunters would be mad with grief 
and out for blood, a situation he was all too familiar with and not keen to put himself in again. But what did that leave him with? He had no food and no money, and the clothes on his back were in tatters. Should he head south then and find this sorceress the creature spoke of? The voices of his fractured mind had much to say about this topic, and none of what they said was particularly consistent or enlightening. He decided that his first and foremost priority was clean clothes, food, and a warm place to sleep, if only for a few short hours, while he figured out his next steps. None of those things were easy to come by this deep in the woods, even for someone as resourceful as Bannock. The towering trees around him seemed to stretch on endlessly in all directions, while the demons of his mind danced about, taking on new vibrant shapes and bright colours that subtly reminded him of the tales his mother once told him of forest fairies. They were beautiful. Some looked like butterflies, others like tiny winged people. They pranced about through the air with careful grace and sang songs that were nothing short of breathtaking, and it only stoked Bannock's paranoia. Though the demons never really had any fixed shape or form, they were almost invariably horrid to look at, so for them to shift into something pleasing to Bannock's eyes wasn't just unusual, it was deeply suspicious. They existed to torment him, so if they were trying to draw his eyes toward them, it could only mean that they were trying to distract him from something vital, something he needed. His eyes darted all around, desperately looking for the thing the demons wanted him to overlook. When he saw the white smoke rising just above the tree line a short distance away, his heart jumped in his chest, and he bolted toward it with abandon, praying that it was not just another hallucination much to the displeasure of the demons who had melted back into their usual repulsive insect-like shapes, hissing and cursing at him like angry children. He ignored them, however, and took this as a sign that the smoke was in fact real, and not just a vision of his lunacy. When he finally made it to the clearing from which the smoke had originated, he was met with both a sense of elation and caution blooming in his chest. The smoke had come from a campfire, and nestled around it were several pitched tents, with a dozen or so men scurrying about them to and fro. A trading caravan of some sort, he guessed, and he paused before approaching them to consider just what exactly he intended to tell them. The whole truth was out of the question, but what else could he tell them to barter for food and shelter? What lies could he tell them to justify being in such a state as he was, and alone this deep in the woods? As quick on his feet and cunning as he could be at times, Bannock had next to no skills when it came to dealing with people, and his lunacy did nothing to make dealing with strangers any easier. He stood there debating with himself for several moments when someone on the edge of the camp took notice of him and called out to him. "'Who goes there?' cried a stout-looking man covered in furs who bore a thick beard and appeared to be somewhere around his fortieth year. Bannock stepped out of the tree line with his hands in the air and spoke as clearly as he could despite the natural hoarseness of his voice. A friend in search of food and shelter for the evening. Nothing more. This caught the attention of the other men of the camp and all activity ceased while they regarded Bannock's approach with the weary suspicion and alertness of men who had been expecting an ambush by bandits at some point along their journey. Some of them reached for their weapons Others just sat staring with anticipation while Bannock approached. Where'd you come from then, friend? Why are you out here all alone? Don't you know there are wolves about in these woods? 
asked the fur-covered man. Wolves killed my family. Ran all night. So tired. Well, it wasn't a lie, at least not totally. A wolf had killed Bannock's family. He had been running all night, and damn it all, he was tired. You have my sympathies, if that's true, stranger. But I still need to know where you hail from. Please, I mean you no harm, and I'm here alone. If I meant to do you harm, you all outnumber me and could deal with me easily. All I ask is some food and a bed for the night. I'll be gone in the morning. Silence prevailed over the camp for a few tense moments before the fur-covered man, whom as far as Bannock could tell was the caravan's leader, spoke again. What's that blackness on your face, stranger? Have you some kind of sickness? Not a sickness, but a scar. I'll bring no harm to you or your party, I swear. I don't trust him. Looks shifty and up to no good, said one of the other caravanners, piping into the conversation. Several nodded in agreement, and Bannock was beginning to regret approaching the camp when the all-too-familiar howl of a hungry wolf sounded from somewhere nearby in the woods. And though Bannock knew that this meant danger for both him and the caravanners, he was relieved that the howling was not coming from within. Beasts are on us, boys. Get ready. Stranger, if you want to camp here tonight, grab a blade and help us fend off the wolves, yelled the fur man. Well, Bannock did not need to be told twice. He ran over to the tents and called a short sword someone had tossed to him in midair, as he joined the circle being formed around the campfire by the caravaneers, and dropped low as he waited for the wolves to make their way through the trees. Oh, there must have been at least a dozen of them. Bannock could hear the rough cadence of their paws cracking twigs and rustling leaves, and could see their icy breath just outside the clearing. But he was unafraid. Daddy boys! If you don't want to die today, stick close to the man next to you, said the caravan leader, evenly, with sword drawn. The wolves filtered out of the tree line slowly, one by one, and each was a little larger and more vicious-looking than the last. Some had light grey coats, others were darker and caked with the dry blood, while the last of the pack to exit the tree line, who was easily the largest, had a coat of pure white. The other wolves gave way to the white wolf as it progressed towards the men of the camp. None of them attacked, though. They simply encircled the clearing and stood there, as if waiting. What are they waiting for? whispered one of the men with panic in his voice. Steady, said the leader of the caravan. The white wolf approached slowly, its green eyes observing the men before him, with the intelligence of a predator sizing up its next meal when its gaze fixed on Bannock, and it stopped dead in its tracks. It stood there staring at him in silence for several moments, before Bannock stepped outside of the circle toward the White Wolf. You're a madman! Get back in the circle, you damn fool! Someone cried out. But Bannock stepped forward defiantly, and the White Wolf took a few steps back. Man and Wolf stood there staring at one another, green eyes locked with icy blue fur, seemed like hours as the men around the campfire watched with bated breath before Bannock took another step toward the white wolf, and it flinched, turned tail and ran back into the woods with the other wolves in tow. Bannock let out a deep sigh of relief, then turned around to see the men around the campfire staring at him in stunned amazement. Was that enough help for you? he asked. The leader of the caravan stepped forward with an expression on his face that Bannock could not quite read, 
and stopped at about an arm's length away from him before he said, Why, that'll do it for me. I don't know what you just did, stranger, but whatever it was just earned you a bed and some stew. I'll have the boy set it up for you. We can't let him in here, Shanks. That was unnatural. Some manner of witchery, I say. Yelled someone over by the campfire, nervously. The fur-covered man turned back and replied with humour in his voice. Well, as I see it, nature's been trying to kill us since we got to these damn woods. If unnatural witchery it be, we could use it right about now. Unless you'd rather take your chances with the wolves. No one had much to say to that. So the man turned back to Bannock and held out his hand as if to make proper introductions. Seamus Heronsworth. But us working men don't have time for long names like that, so you can just call me Shanks. Bannock, he replied as he awkwardly shook his hand. Well, Bannock, I don't know where you came from or where you're heading, but we wouldn't mind having some of your talents keep us company on the road for a while. We can pay you for your time when we get where we're going, and we could keep you fed along the way. Where are you going? We're going to do some trading with a fishing village a few days south of here, on the edge of the swamps. Hmm, that'll do. Part 10 After what felt like an eternity in the dusty, bureaucratic dungeon that was the Hall of Records, poring over countless incident reports... Tommy once again found himself walking the cobblestone streets of Fort Vigilance, soaking in the ambience of a typical early morning in the settlement, in pursuit of what he hoped would provide answers to the terrible massacre that had occurred at the city centre some two nights ago. He found it buried under a pile of fatality reports, and had nearly overlooked it since, in the light of everything else that had been happening in the city of late, it seemed to be of relatively low priority. It was a notice of a missing person, reported by one Ralph Gurkson about a man he worked with at the recently established Rothrick Asylum for Lunatics, a man who apparently went by the name Bannock. If he had a surname, it hadn't been included in the notice, and Tommy could find no one by that name in the citizen registry for Fort Vigilance, an odd thing in and of itself, since Isaac often made a point of reminding everyone of his men to exhaustively document all newcomers to the city in case the leeches made attempts to infiltrate it. Another thing that piqued Tommy's interest about this missing persons notice was the fact that it was the only one that had been reported in relation to the Red Morning. Nearly all the victims of the incident, both living and dead, could be accounted for, since whatever had attacked the city that night seemed to have no interest in taking prisoners, which made this man's disappearance curious, to say the least. Curious enough to make Tommy search out this Ralph Brookson, and ask him a few questions. He made his way through the market en route to the asylum, whose gated fence and dull grey walls adorned with intimidating stone gargoyles that stuck out in sharp contrast to the bright tapestries and colourful displays of the market stalls. The asylum was but one of many examples of the politics that went into establishing a thriving settlement. It was, in fact, owned by a wealthy, educated aristocrat by the name of James Rothrick who fancies himself a philanthropist of sorts. Tommy knew little about the man personally, aside from the fact that he offered generous donations to the fortress in exchange for the housing and protection of his wards. It had been a good deal as far as Isaac was concerned. We get much needed funding for our cause, 
he gets to play around with the simple-minded in peace. Everyone wins. Well, initially the idea of letting a bunch of madmen into the city walls made many people uneasy. But since its establishment, the asylum had operated in peace without incident as far as anyone on the outside could tell. The missing person's notice was the first instance of unrest to come out of the place, and Tommy felt compelled to get to the root of it. He paced through the early morning fog with purpose in every step, past the market vendors and up to the imposing black gate. No one was there to meet him, and he saw no sign of any guards. Now this would be his first dilemma of the day, and it made him weary. He sent word to the asylum man, more specifically to James Rothrick himself, of his impending arrival not long before he left the fortress, so there was the distinct possibility that they simply hadn't received his missive yet. But Tommy also knew all too well that it was also possible that they had received his missive and were scrambling to conceal whatever secrets lay within the ominous high walls of this gothic structure before he arrived, if indeed they had secrets to conceal. As he stood there in the dim scarlet light of the early morning, pondering the possibilities, he found himself thinking back to the words of Feodor Thrain, and of his near-death experience in the villa. Isaac had dismissed Thrain's words outright, and perhaps rightly so, for Thrain was a leech, which meant he was a liar by nature, and not only that, he was the de facto leader of the leeches in Nelgoth, as far as anyone could tell, which made him a liar among liars. Still, though, his words of warning rang in Tommy's ears despite these things, and he found himself trying to decipher their meaning. Selen Cairn. <laughs> the name meant nothing to him, but he was familiar with the marshlands of which Thrain had spoken. He'd been there himself on a handful of occasions early in his career, and none of them were particularly pleasant excursions. Evil things were drawn to that place, and only the stupid or the stubborn made their living there. Who was this Selenkan, if she in fact existed, and of what use could she be to the cause? Moreover, what was this great darkness of which Thrain had spoken? What could be so terrifying that a vampire prince would call for an alliance with his sworn enemies to face? Did it have something to do with the attack on the city? Tommy's questions were legion, and the answers seemed to be shrouded in fog, not unlike Tommy himself. He pondered these thoughts for several moments, when he noticed a short, heavy-set fellow with a thick white beard and a monocle appear from within the asylum and shuffle up towards the gate with a pair of what Tommy assumed were guards in tow. When he arrived at the gate and was more or less face to face with Tommy, he paused for a moment to catch his breath which was laboured, heavy, and full of wheezing, as if he'd just run some great distance. Good morning, Mr. Lachance. I've just received word of your arrival, and resolved to meet you in person. James Rothrick, at your service. I'm the proprietor and patron of this asylum. He then extended his hand through the bars, as if to shake Tommy's hand, to which he responded with thinly veiled sarcasm. Well, this would be an easier conversation to have if you'd actually let me inside. A sheepish expression fell over Rothrick's face, as if that had honestly not occurred to him, and he conceded. Yes, uh, yes, of course. Oh, forgive me. Recent events have put me out of sorts. He produced a set of keys from his pocket, turned to the guard on his left, gave them to him, and gestured to the gate's lock. 
See our guest inside, would you please? The guard nodded and opened the gate promptly, allowing Tommy access to the modest courtyard, which was not the most lavish Tommy had ever seen, but still had all the earmarks of wealth. Two rows of small cypress trees, which were not native to Nelgoth, lined the paved path to the asylum's entrance, and the grass around the path was trimmed and neat. Tommy could even spot a few wild flowers growing in small patches around the place, yet another sharp contrast with the building itself. Rothrick seemed to take notice of Tommy's surveil of the courtyard and began to boast about it. <sighs> Wonderful, isn't it? I'm not one to boast, but I paid special attention to the entrance of my asylum. I'm a staunch believer in peace, both outwards and inwards, and one simply cannot deny that there's a link between the two. So many places of treatment in this day and age model themselves after prisons, both in appearance and in practice. Oh, I aim to change that. How can we expect the wayward souls we care for to trust that we want them to heal if we're also their jailers, eh? A sound and peaceful mind begins with sound and peaceful surroundings, I say. Which is why I spared no expense in making the entrance as welcoming as possible to those whose minds are in turmoil, they can understand they're not coming to a prison, but a place of healing. Oh, there isn't really anything welcoming about a bleak grey building covered in gargoyles that would frighten sane men, said Tommy, flatly cutting him off. Rothrick paused and looked back at his asylum, with a slight look of embarrassment spreading over his face. Ah, oh, well, yes, I suppose you're right about that. The gargoyles were not my choice. My architect's a bit of a traditionalist. Great at his work, mind you, but utterly insufferable when you try to give him design suggestions. Why, just the other day I was chatting with him on that very subject. I understand you're very proud of the work you do here, Mr. Rothrick. But I'm here on important business. I need to speak to this man of yours, by the name of Gurkson, about this missing guard, and any information you can provide on that subject would be welcome. Yes, uh, of course, sir. Uh, the man in question should be working the lower levels. I'll show you the way. Rothrick then strode over to the asylum's large cast-iron door and opened it, ushering Tommy inside with a welcoming gesture. With the two other guards close behind, he walked over the threshold into the building and was a bit surprised by how clean and orderly the interior of it was. The floor was comprised of some sort of tile, and the smell of sage filled his nostrils. A large wooden desk sat at the room centre, where a clean-cut-looking young man, who appeared to be around twenty or so years of age, sat on a padded chair, meticulously organising a stack of parchment. The sound of the door opening caused him to look up from his work momentarily, and nod to his employer as he walked by. "'Good morning, Mr. Rothrick.' Rothrick passed by him without a word, and Tommy was a bit taken aback by his rudeness, but said nothing as he kept pace and followed the odd aristocrat further into the asylum. The young man simply shrugged off Rothrick's rudeness and returned to his papers. Past what Tommy assumed to be the lobby, the building seemed to suffer from a lack of decor. The stone walls were nearly bare, save a few lanterns that hung from them at infrequent intervals. The various rooms they passed seemed to be furnished only in the most minimalistic sense. One such room held only a few plain wooden stools, facing a large chalkboard on which the words, What I enjoyed about today was. There were maybe three or four people in the room, all wearing a thin white cotton garment in a distant, 
vacant look in their eyes, which Tommy guessed marked them as wards of the asylum. They seemed largely unattended, which concerned Tommy a bit, but Rothrick addressed it before he could say anything. Well, that's the day room for our more docile wards. Oh, they're harmless, I assure you. More docile? Tommy took that as an implication that the asylum also housed patients that were not very docile at all, which he asked about despite himself. What do you do with the dangerous ones? Rothrig was a bit taken aback by the question, and seemed to silently chastise himself for saying more than he'd meant to before answering. Every uh, case is different, and we endeavour to create a peaceful atmosphere here, but not all the people we treat here are of sound enough mind to let mingle with the other wards, so for their own good, we restrict them to the lower levels. So you keep the worst ones in the dungeons? Oh, we have no dungeons here. The lower levels of a temporary holding until the wards sufficiently calm enough to allow back among the other wards. Well, it's for their peace and the peace of others. Sounds like a dungeon to me. Rothrick had no response to this, so Tommy changed the subject, if only to keep the man talking, while they reached the end of the corridor and began to descend down a long stone staircase into the asylum's depths. What can you tell me about this missing man of yours who goes by the name of Bannock? Oh, um, not much, I'm afraid. I'm not as well acquainted with all my staff as I'd like to be. Day-to-day -day business here prevents much one-to-one -one interaction. You don't know anything about him at all. Oh, if it's the man I'm thinking of, then there really isn't much to say about him. Quiet fellow for the most part. Diligent in his work, though. He did always seem to be a bit distracted. Why didn't you report him missing yourself? Why was the notice filled out by this man, Gurkson? Have you no concern for your own man? <laughs> of course I do. But you must understand the pandemonium of the past few days affects us here as much as the rest of the city. Many of my men lost family, and many of the wards here were out of control that night, had to be accounted for and restrained. Oh, it's been utter chaos here, I'm ashamed to say. I've had too much to occupy my attention. I'd have known about the missing man immediately. I'd have brought the notice to the fortress myself. Well, he sounded sincere, but then again the best liars always did. Tommy pressed him further. Exactly what did happen here that night, as you remember it. Start from the beginning. The talkative aristocrat took a moment to pause and ruffle his beard as he considered where to begin his account. Well, I'd been in my study most of the night, reading a volume on Eastern medicine, when I heard an awful commotion from somewhere in the courtyard below, through the open window beyond my desk. To my ears, it sounded like a man in pain. I went over to the window to see what was going on, but could see only dim shadows. So I resolved to venture down and find this distressed individual with some orderlies in tow. But by the time we got down into the courtyard proper, there was no one to be found, and nothing to say that anything was amiss but overturned stones and some disrupted shrubbery. We were still searching the courtyard when an orderly brought news to me that violence had broken out in the market outside, so I made it my priority to secure the asylum. Is that all? Tommy wondered aloud after Rothrick had finished his careful recitation. Oh, everything worth mentioning. Sorry I can't be of more assistance. Tommy didn't believe him. His instincts told him that Rothrick was withholding something, perhaps something critical, but he couldn't very well interrogate him just yet. 
Instead, he chose to commit Rothrick's every word to memory for later use. If he contradicted himself later on, as liars often did, Tommy would catch him in the act and use it to get closer to the truth. Until then, he would make do with questioning this man named Gooks. Tommy knew there was a good chance he wouldn't tell him anything significant, but he had little else to go on and nothing to lose. As they descended deeper into the depths of the asylum, the shadows cast by the dimly lit torches that lined the walls seemed to dance in the periphery of his vision. Tommy became keenly aware of the cold and unwelcome feeling that something malignant was watching him in the darkness. Part 11 Selene's return to the waking world was slow, painful and disorienting. Her vision was dotted with white spots and a dull ache wormed its way through her head as she gradually picked herself up off the cold ground of Arabelle's cave and carefully stood up. The elixir had taken a toll on her, more so than simply leaving her drained and nauseous. Uh, she felt as if something deep within her had been hollowed out leaving a deep emptiness in its wake. When she brought her gaze down upon the hand that Arabelle had stabbed during the course of their ritual, she saw that the wound had closed itself up and left a deep scar that somewhat resembled a large dog or wolf upon close inspection. The entire ordeal had left Selene with more questions than answers and reminded her why she resented seeking Arabelle's aid. When her vision was clear enough to allow it, she looked around for the ancient sorceress, if only to demand answers for the things that she'd seen, or rather what had been shown to her by the dark and restless spirits of the ephemeral realms. She dismissed this impulse, however, when she spotted Arabelle kneeling before the wide cauldron in an apparent state of deep meditation. She'd drawn back her hood to reveal her aging face and her menacing green eyes that now seemed vacant and distant as she gazed at the dark bubbling liquid that simmered within the cauldron, whispering to herself in a deep guttural tone that echoed off the cavern walls and made the hairs on the back of Selene's neck stand on end, for the voice that rose out of Arabelle's throat was not one she had ever heard before. It was as if something inhuman and wicked had reached out from the other side was using the old woman's body as a conduit through which to speak its vile will. Every indecipherable word made her skin crawl and prodded her sanity, but she watched Arabelle's ominous meditation passively, despite herself, because she didn't want to risk disrupting whatever magic the unpredictable and malevolent old witch had conjured for self-preservation's sake. When Arabelle's sinister chanting finally came to a close, an ice-cold wind blew through the cavern, momentarily dimming the candles that glowed all around them and bringing a heavy and depressive darkness into the chamber. For the briefest of moments, Selen could have sworn she saw the shadowy silhouette of a tall and vaguely human-looking creature standing over Arabelle and whispering into her ear, before the unnatural gust of wind dissipated and soft light once again filled the chamber, leaving the two of them alone. When Arabelle eventually opened her sickly green eyes again and looked at Selene, it was with a disturbing ear-to-ear -ear grin painted across her haggard ancient face. The pact has been made, and a pact once made must be honoured, she said cryptically as she rose up to stand. Selene opened her mouth to speak, but before she spoke a word, Arabelle continued unabated. 
The old ones have shown me the hungry shade that haunts your dreams, and the journey you must make to rid yourself of him. The path before you is a long and dark one, paved with suffering and sacrifice, apprentice, she said with the grim authority of one who spoke words of prophecy. Speak plainly about what you have seen, then, so I may put this place behind me. Selene demanded in a tone of unabashed exasperation. Arabelle shook her head in response. Some things cannot be explained, only lived through. Before she turned and walked over to the cold stone cavern wall that stood directly opposite to the both of them, and drew an elaborate symbol with her long, pale forefinger on its surface. The stone seemed to ripple and change beneath her touch, melting away to reveal a long passage lined with torches that extended much further than Selene was able to see. "'Where does this lead?' she asked wearily as she approached the opening Arabelle had just created. The sorceress regarded the question with contempt, as if Selene had just asked something remarkably stupid. "'Why do the young always seek answers to the wrong questions?' she lamented aloud before walking over to a nearby torch, removing it from the wall and handing it to Selene. The creature that hunts you makes his home deep beneath the earth, so your only path forward is down, apprentice. The deep road will take you where you need to go, if you're strong enough to walk it, she said in a flat, disinterested tone that did nothing to reassure Selene of the safety of the passage. What can I expect to encounter ahead in this deep road of yours, Mother Dearest? she asked with undisguised suspicion. The dangers of the deep road lie not in what is ahead, but rather what lies within. I suppose a direct answer was too much to hope from you. I do not expect your gratitude, proud child, but I do expect you to survive. I will have uses for you when this thing is done, responded Arabelle cryptically. You will never again use me for anything, you wicked old crone. This is the last time we will ever see each other, snapped Selene, letting more emotion slip into her voice than she'd intended. A raspy cackle rose from the old woman's throat, and she smiled at Selene through rotten black teeth. You owe me more than you will ever understand, girl, and you'll always need me no matter how much you despise me. Run along now. The hour grows late and much remains to be done. Say hello to that cat of mine if you ever see him again, will you? Selene withstood the urge to say any more to the witch, and with some minor trepidation took her first steps down the dimly lit passage, doing her best to ignore the growing sense of dread that loomed over her as she went deeper into the depths. Part 12 Isaac could still hear the scream some nights, when he laid alone in his bed after the day came to a close and darkness crept across the sky. When the bustling marketplace below went quiet, and only the low drone of insects and the steady sound of the night watchman's boots hitting the damp stone floor could be heard in the fortress. He could hear them as clearly as he had that night in the mountains so many years ago, when the gods saw fit to teach him the price of careless trust. Tonight, as he stood alone on the balcony of the Tower of Vigilance, looking into the all-consuming dark abyss of the night around him, while he patiently awaited the first lights of dawn, he could still hear them. 
The screams were like vengeful ghosts, forever reminding him that no matter how much good he'd accomplished all these years, the gods had not forgotten his many sins, and that one of these bleak nights they would come to settle the debt. Isaac had never slept well or long at the best of times, and since the savagery that had taken place in the market, he didn't sleep at all. Instead, he stood atop the balcony, thinking about the uncertain future that lay ahead, as well as the horrors of the past that lay behind him. Sometimes when he closed his eyes, he could still feel the slick wetness of his brother's blood on his palms and hear his laboured gasps as he lay dying in the snow. He would have turned sixteen that year, if he'd made it down from the mountains. Other nights, if he allowed his mind to linger in memory, he could clearly hear his father's frantic and trembling voice as he made incoherent attempts to beg the red-haired stranger to spare the lives of his children, and could still see the detached, amused expression in the stranger's cold yellow eyes as he tore open his father's throat with his jagged, sharp teeth before turning his attention back to Isaac. Isaac had begged as well that night, desperately and pitifully, and that was his greatest shame. For many years and countless sleep-deprived nights, he tried to convince himself that any boy of seventeen would have done the same, that anyone given the same choice that the red-haired stranger had given him, to die or to serve, would have chosen the latter. But in his heart he still felt like a coward. Even thirty years later, after countless monsters had died by his hands, and naive, wide-eyed young warriors looked up to him and called him Many Fang. To him the title was hollow, because no matter how many monsters he'd destroyed, there always seemed to be another one lurking somewhere out in the darkness, and he was growing weary of it all. Weary of the fighting and the killing, weary of the endless nights, and, most of all, he was weary of watching the brave and foolish children that fought for him die gruesome deaths while the red-haired demon that destroyed his life laughed at him from afar. He wanted it all to end. He never gave any thought to ending his own life, though. Such an action would have been cowardice in its purest form, and would have left Tommy, Anna, and so many others without a leader that truly understood the leeches and how to wage war against them, and that was something he could never do. He would see this war to its bitter end, no matter the cost, and that thought filled him with the resolve to do something he'd not had the strength to do in years. With a deep breath, he left the balcony, entered his bedchamber and approached the tall, dust-coated bookcase that stood directly opposite to his bed, and pulled down the black book on the right-hand side of the uppermost shelf, which was not truly a book at all, but rather a lever. The sharp hiss of metal and the churning of gears reverberated throughout the bedchamber as the bookcase slid to the left to reveal a hidden stairwell which Isaac descended with purpose in every step. What he was about to do was shameful, blasphemous even, but entirely necessary. At least that was what he told himself as he walked the long, dank passageway to the small, dimly lit subterranean chamber that only he and Tommy knew about, and looked upon the black case he'd promised himself he would never open again. He hesitated for several long moments before he opened it slowly and let his eyes fall upon the tall bottle within. At a glance, it looked like it could have been a wine bottle, except for the fact that it bore no label, and Isaac knew full well that the deep red liquid that churned within it was not wine. Most people in Nelgoth knew that vampires ravenously craved blood, 
But very few knew that vampire blood was a powerfully addictive substance itself when consumed by the living. It brought strength and vitality beyond normal human capabilities when consumed, and could make a stout warrior out of even the most frail and sickly person. The danger of this practice was grave, however. Every drink brought with it a terrible thirst that was agony to ignore, and the more one succumbed to it, the closer one came to dying and rising again as a vampire themselves. To some, this outcome was desirable. The desire and accompanying addiction, as well as the unspoken promise of eventual transformation, was the leash that the leeches held around their mortal servants, and was the very thing that had kept Isaac bound to the service of the monster that had murdered his family for ten long years. It had taken all of his strength and the aid of his best apprentice to quit the last time he'd found himself in the grip of his own holy addiction, and he didn't know if he was strong enough to quit again before he became what he hated most. He knew full well that he was gambling his very soul in doing this again, and the thought turned his stomach. But he also knew that something dark and terrible was fast approaching on the horizon, that the horrors that had taken place in the market were a mere prelude to something much, much worse. His instincts told him as much. He knew he would need every weapon he had at his disposal to face what was to come, if he was to keep those he held dear from suffering the same gruesome fates he'd seen before so many others. He had failed his father and brother, but he would not fail his apprentices while he still drew breath. That much he swore to himself, as he took the bottle from the case, opened it and brought it to his lips. As the bitter metallic liquid passed his lips and filled him with strength, the likes of which he had not known since he was a young man, he took comfort in knowing that, even if the worst should come to pass, that if the first should overtake him, and he should become the enemy, his brave, foolish children would lay him to rest. Part 13 To the eyes of most newcomers, Crone's Hollow did not look much like a village at all, much less a moderately successful trading outpost. The few ramshackle huts and neglected cottages that lined the shore of the vast, murky swamp beyond looked abandoned to Bannock despite the reassurances Shanks had given him that this was indeed their destination. Bannock took him at his word, since he'd shown himself to be the most amicable member of the caravan Bannock now found himself travelling with over the course of their journey through the forest, but he still found it hard to believe anyone would willingly live in such squalor. Do people actually live here? He unintentionally wondered aloud. Shanks took the question in stride. Doesn't look like much, I know. The people here are an odd and guarded sort, but dependable and fair once you earn their trust. Uh, if you say so, well, I do say so. Bannock gave a half-hearted nod in acknowledgement. In the time he'd travelled with him, Bannock had concluded that Shanks was not the kind of man to lie or to have hidden ulterior motives, but he was uneasy nonetheless. He knew from experience that small, secluded villages such as this one were often deeply superstitious and distrustful of outsiders, and that that superstitious distrust could quickly transform into violent hate if one was too careless. He kept such thoughts to himself, though, and kept his pace with the rest of the caravan as it moved towards the village at a steady pace. Aside from Shanks, the other men of the caravan wore their distrust of Bannock openly, 
and kept their distance from him whenever possible. He didn't blame them for it. He was a stranger to them, and a stranger with secrets to boot. Such distrust was only natural, though he did wish they would stop whispering when his back was turned. The demons already whispered to him enough. They whispered to him about his new master, of the terrible power he possessed, and of the utter pointlessness of his continued struggle for survival, and it gave Bannock a headache. Once they were close enough to the village proper, Bannock could see what looked to be a wooden effigy of a woman in the village centre directly in front of a spacious longhouse that Bannock assumed housed the village's leader. An assumption that proved accurate when a swarthy giant of a man with a long beard and countless tattoos etched across his bare chest emerged from the longhouse and greeted Shanks with both familiarity and authority. You're late, outsider. Shanks gave him a sheepish grin before he replied. We ran into some delays out in the wilds, Ivor. It couldn't be helped. What delays? The kind with fangs. Wolves? Afraid so. Whole packs of them, in fact. Did you lose anyone along the way? Thankfully, not a soul. We even picked up a stray, he replied, gesturing to Bannock. The giant man called Ivor, cast a curious, appraising glance at Bannock. And Bannock thought he could detect a hint of both recognition and distrust in his expression when his eyes fell upon the black scar on his forehead. You have the look of a man touched by evil, stranger, he stated with jaded certainty. Bannock responded defensively. Who hasn't seen their share of evil in this world? I'm but a traveller passing through. I don't mean anyone any harm. Nor would we do any harm to an honored guest, so long as they remembered their place. The thinly veiled fret was followed by a tense silence among everyone present that lasted for several moments, before being broken by the sound of Shanks loudly clearing his throat before interjecting. Uh, there won't be any need for any of that, Ivor. We're all friends here, you have my word. Have I ever lied at you before? Ivor nodded in acknowledgement but did not take his eyes away from Bannock while he responded. You've all come to us at a delicate time. We've lost more people in the last few weeks than we have in the last generation. Most of us are in no mood for strangers. We will not deny you hospitality, but our trust is something you'll need to earn. Such is our way. He then turned and re-entered the longhouse without another word. Shanks let out an audible sigh of relief before turning and placing a hand on Bannock's shoulder. He'll warm up to you, he said reassuringly. Well, Bannock wasn't convinced, but he let the matter drop. What now? Now we set up the tents and get some rest, and in the morning we do business. Right then. The task of setting up the tents was a monotonous one. Their chosen campsite lay just outside the village border on the edge of the bog to avoid irritating the locals. Bannock went about the work with practiced diligence while doing his best to keep to himself, and as he did so, he thought he caught a glimpse of someone out in the marshes some distance away, standing in the shadow of a great dead oak tree. The figure looked like an old woman whose long, dark hair fell past the drawn hood of her grey cloak, as she smiled silently at him with blackened teeth and emerald green eyes that glistened in the moonlight. Bannock found her presence unnerving, mostly because he wasn't sure if she was real or just another trick of the eye played on him by the demons that haunted his mind. 
he decided to settle the matter by asking Shanks about it. Who's that old woman out there in the bog? he asked, pointing out at the oak tree. Shanks followed his finger with his gaze before giving him a confused answer. What old woman? There's no one out there, he said definitively. Bannock supposed he had his answer. Never mind, it's nothing. He then went back to the task of setting up his tent and did his best to ignore the piercing gaze of the old woman out in the swamp until he was under his covers and drifting off into a restless sleep. So I just love the way that this story is developing. Hope you do too. Another four chapters there, bringing us up to... Where are we now? Is that 12 overall? 13? Oh, anyway. Um, yeah. Keeps on giving, doesn't it? Lots more to come, I am assured by the author, and don't know about you, but I can't wait. Well, that's your Sunday evening treat between Christmas and New Year. What would you like me to do tomorrow night? Any thoughts, feelings? Anything you want? Up for it for tomorrow evening when there will be another video. Oh, yes, indeed. But that is enough for me for one evening. So until the next time, very, very sweet dreams and bye-bye. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this story today. It really means a lot to me and to the author of the story, of course. Well, if you want to know more about me, I'm pretty much everywhere on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can download my music on SoundCloud. Um, I've got a Patreon if you feel like. Throw me a dollar or two. Very much appreciated. And of course, on Reddit, I have a place where you can leave stories if you want me to read one that you've written. Well, hoping to see you all again very soon. Till then, sweet dreams. Bye-bye.